Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teeth and Titanium, episode 17. This is the first of 2022. Oscar, how's it going? I can't believe it's 2022 already, and it feels like nothing has changed. I know, because we're kind of going backwards, and we're going to get into that for sure. But it's exciting, the new year, another another year of Teeth and Titanium confirmed for 2022. Yeah, it's a good start. Yeah, it's been almost two years. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary in May, so. I know, I was surprised when, you, when we were talking about it that, I was like, oh, it's our, it's our first year anniversary. I'm like, no, it's not. It's going to be two years now. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Time's flying. The time's flying and it's not flying, but podcast wise, it's flying. Yeah. Yeah. I'll agree with that. We have a lot to get into this episode because we didn't have a December episode. We've been building up content and it's the new year. So we have our special New Year's resolution segment that we like to do each new year. So we'll get into that. But first, I wanted to talk to you about last episode. You know, the last episode we had was in November with Nicholas McCool. And it was kind of nice to have a guest come on the show and then you and I received some nice positive feedback afterwards. It was just such a contrast to the Miller episode and all the feedback we got after his episode. <laughs> but no, we got some great feedback, especially as I told you, for me coming from McGill, all the McGill people reaching out, people that have graduated, people that are still in the program. Apparently at McGill, they've been making fun of them for certain lines or making fun of me or bringing things up. So I think they've been enjoying it as you would if you hear your own staff and you get to kind of make fun of them. Yeah, no. And, I, and I, honestly, I like being part of, so like, obviously we do the podcast together, but the last one, I would say November, I almost felt like I was a part of it because I felt like I got to understand the person that you talked about so much. And I saw the connection that you had with, with McCool. So yeah. it was really nice to be a part of last podcast, I would say. Yeah, it, it was a great time. And we definitely had a lot of positive feedback. So that, that was good. It was, it was a fun time. We also had some other feedback. Ellen Holzman, who, as we know, the CAOMS secretariat, she listens to every episode. We've said that in the past, but now I feel like Oscar, she's getting a little more comfortable because it used to just be like, you know, great work. Now she's commenting and the comments used to be just, you know, positive or great. I love. Now she's starting to come at us a little bit. So she emailed us saying that she disagreed with my assessment of no time to die. You, you know what? I don't, I don't mind her calling you out. I have no issues. She's earned <laughs> it. Especially since you didn't see the movie because I like banned you from seeing it. You and every told other me it's the worst movie ever. So and, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to watch it. And every other person that's talked to you about the movie has said it was pretty good. Yeah. Literally every other person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going with you though. I'm still having yeah. a laugh. And I'm standing by my opinion, no matter what Ellen says, I think it was a terrible movie, but Listen, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but always good to hear from Ellen. Always good to hear feedback. And also someone that's not a surgeon themselves. So you get like in a kind of a different perspective on someone that's connected to all our issues and kind of what we're going through and has been around for so long. Well, like that's why I appreciate Ellen even more because she's taken the time out of her day to listen to all this. And yeah, some of the things may not interest her as much, but she listens to the full episodes, always has comments, like shout out to her. And she called you out. So bigger shout out to her. <laughs> exactly. So, without further ado, let's jump into this episode and talk about some current events. All right, so the first current event I want to talk to you about was I had the pleasure in November. This is going to sound crazy now thinking about the lockdown that we're back in, but in November I had the pleasure of traveling. Oh, I knew I'm that. I'm so jealous. 
Yeah, I know that going to my first December, December is always a busy time in general for oral surgeons, but I was pretty much working every day in December. So the last week of November, I thought, oh, this would be a great time to take a vacation and go away. So when I with the family to the Dominican Republic, it was a great time. We went for a little bit less than a week. It was our first time traveling with Lennox. So just you parent. be in Lennox or the rest of the family too? Yeah, no, just me being Lennox. It was our first trip with him. I was obviously super nervous about that and the plane ride and trying to figure out how to manage him. But the funny thing was it ended up being easier to print over there because the weather's warm. So you're in t-shirts shorts, you can be outside the whole time and he loves being outdoors. Whereas here it's freezing, you're stuck in your apartment. It's free, the guy gets bored. So once you get over the plane ride, it was it was a ton of fun. Great Speaking weather. Of ride, how was he on the plane? He actually was fine. That's he, lucky. We got really also lucky with the time when the flights just happened to coincide with like one of his naps. So that burns like an hour right there. And it's not you, the farthest flight. Not the farthest flight, it's like four and a half hours. So you, you burn one hour on the nap, you burn another hour by playing some kind of YouTube show for them, just give them the screen time. And the rest, you know, you, you just had to push through for the rest. Yeah, no, that's great. So uh, overall, it went really, really well. No complaints. It was pretty funny because now that we returned back and, you know, working full time and things like that, Bianca also works, you know, we had to try and put him in daycare for the first time, which is also a new experience. And what's funny is, you know, technology always increases and access always increases, but daycare nowadays, they have cameras set up in the daycare and you can go on your iPhone, there's an app, you can go online, there's a website and you can check in on the cameras and see how they're doing. And I equate this to people that invest in like the stock market, like individual stocks or, you know, but you're day trading your child. Well, exactly. Because obviously I don't recommend day trading. We had a whole episode with Benjamin Felix talking about why it's a disastrous idea. So I never checked the stock market. I never checked any of this. That was a total waste of time in my opinion. But this was my closest experience because Oscar, I kid you not, within arriving to work in 15 minutes, I checked that camera 10 times. You're like, I'm canceling the day. I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> in between every single patient, I would check the camera. I would close the window, then I'd log back in and check. I actually had to tell Bianca, change the password and don't tell me what it is. That is too good though. Yeah, so I cut but myself But honestly, off. I feel like, yeah, if you have that instant access at, the, at your fingertips, it's hard not to do it. It was too much. It was too much access, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So that's what's been going on on the parenting side. Obviously, first vacation was a huge success, but daycare a little more challenging. And so with the daycare, is he having a tough time? Like when you drop him off, does he like it? Does he not like it? Is he crying? What's going on with that? He hates it. <laughs> no way. And kids are so smart. Within three times of going there. He now knows what's going on. He senses it. You walk through the mall where this daycare is. You walk through the mall. He's happy as a clam. As soon as you start approaching the door, he starts freaking out, crying, looking at you, trying to grab hold of you. Like it's, it's honestly, it's depressing. No way. Yeah, he hates it. And so that's funny because one of our like mutual friends, Ken, he's another oral surgeon. He just dropped off his his little one, his daughter, in her kind of first like daycare play date school type thing that she's doing. Yeah. And it was today and she loved it. She just walked away. He's like, well, clearly she doesn't like me. <laughs> wow, he's lucky. No. Lennox, Lennox hated it. So it's 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 a disaster. It's a work in progress. Okay, nice. The other thing is we're only doing it like one day a week for him. So a lot of people have told me that this is common, but they get used to it. But if he's only going one day a week, they never get used to it. Yeah, it's going to take him longer to get used to it for sure. Yeah, so that's a mess. Maybe the parents that listen can message me with their advice because most of our listeners do have kids and they have multiple kids and they're all older. So they're all laughing at what, what I'm going through now, what you're going to have to go through soon, I'm sure. 
Yeah, they're gonna be like this guy. He has no idea what's coming. Yeah, and then they're like, and the other guy doesn't even have kids, so he's even more screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, you don't uh, take all my horror stories and prevent you. But yeah, overall, we'll see what happens. But daycare is a disaster so far. The next thing we want to talk about was in the recent issue of JOMS, there was a CAOMS program pamphlet. I know you saw that as well. And huge props uh, to COMS and the committee for coming up with this pamphlet. A lot of people worked on it. Very well done. And I wish this came out before my fellowship because everyone would have known like, oh, you're from Canada. Which program are you from? Where is it located? It just kind of explains. So it's a really nice pamphlet. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend taking a look at it. It shows all the programs. It shows the history of oral surgery in Canada, which is very interesting. Each program, it kind of shows the history of that program, who founded it. You get to see all the big names and kind of what brought up the program, who were the previous program directors. It's really nice. I thought it's like a nice history lesson. I, I actually loved it. The only thing that made me, I guess, a little bit, not sad, but it was like, wow, it puts this in perspective. I'm like, imagine the States tried to do that. No, it's impossible. It's impossible, right? Like we are so small that we could do it in a little pamphlet. They would take up an encyclopedia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's the that's how crazy it is. Yeah, yeah. So it was nice. nice. I like that we have a small community and everyone kind of knows everyone. And that was a really nice pamphlet. I thought it was really well done. I kind of got double screwed because not only did it come out after my fellowship, so it was too late for people to realize what Canada was and where the programs were, but also it was in the works before during my fellowship. So I'm not listed as faculty on the U of T page. But you're nowhere. I'm nowhere. I don't exist in this booklet. Like you literally. I, actually, you're in the shafted. booklet. I'm pretty sure your photo's in the booklet and I'm not even in there. <laughs> you got shafted so terribly there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's okay. I guess, you know, they were like, ah, this guy may or may not come. We may or may not take him. Let's not include him in the booklet. N next pamphlet, they'll put you in. Yeah, yeah. 20 years from now when they do an updated pamphlet. So that was a really nice pamphlet. I really recommend everyone to, to look at it. Speaking of which, the uh, CMS wanted us to give a plug for Iceland and Reykjavik. Um, that's not just them wanting it. Like we wanted to give this plug too. This is a this is a legit plug. Yeah, and uh, you you've actually been to Iceland. You mentioned and you said you had a great time there. Oh, I loved it. And honestly, the more well, like fingers crossed, COVID doesn't keep stopping the world again. We're going backwards here in Canada. But if it can happen, it'll be an awesome event for sure. Yeah, exactly. And I've always wanted to go to Iceland, so I'm super super pumped for that. So huge plug to that event and. As you mentioned, as, as long as we're all able to go, I think that's going to be a really, really good event. I think it's going to be an event people talk about for a long time. So the next thing we want to talk about was just kind of caseloads. So as you know, you know, being a, being a new surgeon, I'm trying to keep my orthognathic skills going. You know, you finish a fellowship, you've done 250 of these in a year. You feel like I, I already joked with you and I told you I'm more comfortable with orthognathic than I am with like a dental implant at this point. But you don't want to lose those skills. You don't want to get rusty. And I... Some people had asked me, what's a way to keep that going? And some residents have said, well, what do you do? And how do you bring referrals and stuff like that? Well, I think you have to realize that the first step isn't really the referrals, because although that's important, those people and the referrals you see are not going to be ready for like a year or two years. For sure. So like so, you can't rely on that to be your next surgery. You can't rely. That's like two years from now, you're hoping, okay, then you'll be busy. So I think the best thing you can do is try and find someone that's doing orthodontic surgery and see if they need an assistant. Even if it means you volunteering your time and there's no money in it, you can't take it as it's a money thing. You got to take it as an, I have to keep my skills, especially if this is something I want to do long-term. Yeah. And in general, we've talked about a lot that the hospital days and going to the OR, it's never a monetary thing. In fact, you probably lose money based on the opportunity cost of not being in the office. It, especially if you're going to be the assist, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Especially if you're the assist. For those that don't know, in Ontario, at least I think it's Canada-wise, but I think the percentages might vary. But in Ontario, if you're an assistant, you get 30% 
of what the primary bills, but not all the codes. Like it's usually just like the main code that you get 30% of. So you're right. Like doing 250 is a, is a huge number, but you've done 250 for one year. It's different if you've been doing 250 for 15 years. Yeah. Take a year off. Who cares? You don't do another case. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. You've been doing it for a year. If you take another year off, you haven't done anything. Yeah. But so I, I think a good thing is to try and find other people that are doing cases. And the beauty of that is they're going to have cases ready to go because, as you said, they've been working for a long time. So they have that kind of steady stream. The second thing is most people are happy to have an assist, especially an assist as an oral surgeon, because then they're not relying on like a physician assistant or just like a dental assistant or a nurse to help them. They enjoy you know, the camaraderie of working with someone else. And the last we thing is... We talked about it too, though. Like you're helping them out because you've seen how different it is to do orthognathic in a residency program than it is to do in a community setting if it's not with another oral surgeon. It's way harder. Way harder. And even with another oral surgeon, you have to keep in mind that you don't have someone at the head. So I'm learning tricks already on how to do it with only two people instead of three people, which I really struggle with because I've only ever done orthonathics. Yeah, I've only ever done it with three. Yeah. I've never done it with two. So who's the guy yeah. holding sticks? What are you gonna put up with the nurse? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you learn tricks about how to kind of do it with two people and different instruments you can use and different ways to set up and how to get good visualization. So I've been really, really fortunate, you know, to be doing a bunch of cases, you know, Dana Moore, obviously who I work with, Joey Fried, like there's some other people that I wanna work with that I haven't had a chance to as yet, but they've been giving me like a steady stream of cases mm -hmm. because they're going to the OR and they, and they, it actually works out well for them too because they have someone that's like, ready to assist them and can take the day off to assist them because I'm not, let's say I'm not working anyways. Or at this point, I just, I just tell them, I don't want to be in clinic that day. I'd rather go to the OR just to try and get the experience. I think you have a pretty good setup out there. Like they're helping you. You're also helping them and it works out pretty well. Yeah, exactly. So, so far, so far it's been good. I think I've done maybe around 15 orthonathic cases since I graduated the fellowship. And I did my first one with the residents at U of T last week. So that was a lot of fun because obviously I, I enjoy doing the community, but you also kind of want to be doing this with the residents because that's kind of why you get into it, to teach the residents and show them what you learned. That's one of your big things that you wanted to do. You wanted to pass on this teaching. Yeah, I want to show them the Charlotte method and, and kind of bring it to Toronto. I feel like that is my value add or one of them, at least to the Toronto program. And so it's funny because actually we haven't even talked about this at all. So I didn't realize you did it with the residents. What did you actually end up doing with them? What case was it? Yeah, so it was the last OR before everything started getting shut down again. But I had a Lafort one revision, which are always the hardest cases to do. Revision cases are the worst. Anyone who's done one will know. And now the residents having gone through one will also know why they're so brutal. And it was tough. It was someone that had a triple jaw and had non-union of the maxilla with hardware failure. So her maxilla was mobile, lack of bone. So we did a we did an interior iliac crest bone graft. So yeah, it was a good case. The hardest part, honestly, of the case was removing the old hardware. Brutally. <laughs> oh, hardware removal is the worst. Farrell always used to say, nothing is worse than hardware removal. Like, he, he always says that nothing's worse than hardware removal. We tried to find them. They're encased in bone. The plates are fractured. You're trying to make sure you don't lose a screw. Just absolutely brutal. But it was it was challenging. It was a really challenging case, but final result was good. Really happy. Patients thrilled, obviously. So I've seen her a couple of times for post-op and she doesn't have a floating maxilla. So she's pretty happy. Now she has a floating <laughs> mandible. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. And that's really exciting. That's great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So, so that was good. Unfortunately, you know, I had, I think I had eight orthodontic cases booked in the next few months with the residents, but now all of them are canceled. Even our private practice, they've told us you can only do urgent and emergent cases. You can't really do sedations unless it's absolutely necessary. They're really, really restricting both of us. So you've been that's something you've been dealing with, you said, at, at your office as an associate, but also the greater group in general. Yeah, like it was it was like 
it was a pretty big bombshell when that that news came out because yeah, it's one thing to cancel our ORs, but now you're canceling our private practice, really. So, and like you said, our practice has seven, eight, nine surgeons. That's a lot of rescheduling. That's a lot of mm-hmm. angry patients, and and really, that's how we make money. So, it, it hasn't been the happiest couple of weeks for sure. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And the other thing is, they haven't really given us a definitive end date. We're all just kind of assuming dates, but you don't really know when to stop the rescheduling. And this was honestly the same thing that happened last April. So April 24th, the direct, we've all looked it up because we were all like, well, how long did this last last year? So April 24th, the directive came out last year and we didn't get to start doing normal sedating till May 19th. So about three weeks, but there was no end date. They just had an open uh, day and then they messaged us May 19th and said, okay, you can restart again. So okay, it's kind of, we just wait until they tell us, yep. Well, that's good to know because everyone that I've been talking with as well, they always keep referencing last in 2020 and they always say, oh, this is like April. This is like back in the day. But obviously I was doing my fellowship where I was in residency. So I never dealt with that. So I'm experiencing for the first time. So I'm kind of juggling, you know, what do I do here? How do I handle this? How long, how far out do I put them? When do I start scheduling again? Do I have to cancel patients again? Yeah. So, and, and again, we also haven't faced a wave with this many cases either. So last time it had been three weeks, maybe it's six weeks this time, or we don't really know what's going to happen. Yeah. And obviously Dan Amur was was here at the practice and he went through it. So he's kind of telling me how they used to do things. But I mean, big shout out to one of your bosses, uh, Brian Rittenberg, because he's someone that I find when it comes to practice management and making these decisions. I honestly, I call him a lot to just say, Brian, like, how do I handle this? Like, what am I supposed to do here? And he's he's been helping me a little bit with that too. There's no other word to say about him, but he's just a beauty. He is awesome. That guy has so many hats and it, and does so much. I don't know when he sleeps because he's always working. <laughs> like I'm at the office with him and I'm, I'm like typing a note and he's answering five emails, calling three people, organizing our office, organizing Sinai. Like he's very impressive. Yeah. And you get emails from him at like three in the morning. Yeah. And then he's out and then he's out for a run at 630. I'm like, how is this guy doing this? <laughs> Well, haven't you been working out with him recently, you said? We were until we got locked down again. But yeah, we were working out at 6 a.m. And he's like, oh, it's not that early. I'm like, what are you talking about? 6 a.m. So this was this reminds me of when I was in fellowship. One of the partners there, Wahid Muhammad, he was a big soccer fan and he actually played soccer. So I said, I love soccer. I want to play soccer. When do you do it? So he said, "Okay, I'll send you the info. We play tomorrow. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done to play. So he sends it to me and he says, meet at this field at 530 in the morning. So, so I, I was like, this guy's obviously trolling me. Like, nah, ha, ha, like what's, what's the actual thing? He's like, dude, it's at 5.30. I was like, that's not possible. He said, welcome to being a grown-up when people have families and work. You can't find any other time to play. So I show up at this field convinced that I'm being like, this is a prank. This is a setup. I thought I was being punked. And I get there at 5.30 and it's packed. No way. It's packed. And I remember I played in this league quite a few times, maybe like 20 times total. And it was always at 530 in the morning. And I remember you wake up, you're dead. You get in the shower, you're dead. You make it to the field, you're dead. You warm up, you're dead. And then you start playing. Once you're playing, obviously you're happy. So you're, you're having fun. You're waking up. And by the end, you have a great work and you feel amazing. And you have the rest of the day knowing you worked out. But it's so true. Because right now, if I think about my life right now, I can barely get home to eat and talk to my wife, let alone go for like a soccer game. Oh, there's no chance. (laughs) With kids. So I think once you grow up, you hit the stage where you either play super early in the morning or super late at night. Or you don't play anything. Yeah, or don't play anything. Yeah, the Oscar method. But I think a lot of people favor the early workout. So 
it is funny that you mentioned he gets up so early. And I remember back in the day, because I, I don't know him as well as you do, obviously. You're he's one of your really, really good buddies. You work with him, but also you're with him in residency and you've known this about him, but I didn't know that much about him. So I had this weird experience with him when I was first talking to him and first thinking about joining Sina was that every time I talked to him, I say this is the nicest guy ever. But then all the time in between our conversations, I was thinking like, this guy doesn't respond to my emails. He doesn't respond to my texts. I remember messaging you be like, Oscar, this guy is like, he's ghosting me. He and you're like, don't worry about it. This is the busiest guy you've ever met. He'll respond eventually. You, he will definitely respond. And you can't even hold it against him. If you see his phone, I get stressed looking at his phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I'm actually working at Sinai with him, I only see the Sinai side. And just the Sinai side, I'm like, how does this guy own a private practice. Exactly. Like, <laughs> and it's like the biggest practice, one of the biggest practices in Canada. So it's like, oh, yeah. I don't know. How, yeah. So shout out to Rittenberg. Sorry that I judged you for ghosting me and not responding to my text messages or emails. But at least <laughs> at least I know now that you're super busy. Now, one thing I have to challenge you on, Oscar, is, and I do have some big news to announce. This is obviously news that you already know, but this is the one, one of the really big news I want to announce to our listener group, to the podcast listeners and, and all the people in Canada is that you made a comment there and, and you said that, you know, he owns one of the biggest practices in Canada. And, you know, me as an associate, I'm like, whatever, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not probably true. I mean, Crescent's huge, got tons of partners, really busy. You work there. But now I got to think of things differently because now, you know, I'm, I have to announce that I'm a, I'm a practice owner myself. That is <laughs> Yeah, for people, it's a, this is an audio medium, but Oscar's giving me a slow clap. I, honestly, you deserve that though. Like it's a big deal. You're, you're a year out. You had a plan. We had talked about quite a bit. Like we, again, people think maybe we're not friends. We are definitely close friends and we discuss a lot of things back and forth. Mm -hmm. I was very excited when you officially, when it became official. So like now everybody else knows that. Congratulations on that, man. That's huge news. Yeah. So obviously my practice cannot compare with Crescent or, or, or your practice or Brian's practice as far as scope and size. So I'm not, I'm, I'm just joking around. Can, pretending that I'm competing for this biggest practice in Canada. But I did want to announce that I am a practice owner. I purchased the practice from that I'm working at with Dan Amura. I purchased it from him in December. So he's made everything super, super easy. We were actually talking about this today, saying that even though we have had a great relationship since day one, and we've been open and transparent about everything since day one, as far as transition timing, associate contracts, purchasing contracts, thinking about prices, thinking about the structure of everything, when to transition staff, like you, you start thinking of all the things you have, there's a lot to go through accounting legal, even though we've had a great relationship since day one, and we've been pretty much on the same page on all the major things since day one, we were talking about this today, even with all of that, there were still maybe 10 to 15 moments where it's not awkward, but it's like, you think in your mind, man, this conversation could go either way. Is this going to happen or not? Yeah. And is this conversation going to be a deal breaker? Is this conversation going to create awkwardness? Is this conversation going to ruin our relationship? Like even with us being so transparent and honest since day one, there were still so many moments where on his side, he'll admit as well. And on my side, we're thinking, man, what's going to happen here? And like you said, and this was a person that almost everyone in the oral social community knows as a very stand-up guy going to hold his word, but it's just still a business in the end. So it is difficult to come to these final decisions. Mm -hmm. And you have to put your emotion aside. No matter, doesn't matter how much you like the person you, and he, and he had to do the same thing on his side. Like you have to get the lawyers involved. 
You have to get the accountants involved. You have to get the practice valuation involved. I was thinking that going through this experience is going to be amazing for the residents and associates listening because now that I've been through it, I learned so much about the process. And you mentioned us talking, but so much of, I mean, people will say, well, Oscar doesn't own a practice. It doesn't matter. You're surrounded by people that own a practice. You're an associate and you've been in the market and you understand billing, patients, referrals, goodwill, practice valuation. You have other friends that are starting practices, building practices. Like I've probably asked you, we've probably talked for maybe a hundred hours about different topics and me asking you, Oscar, is this a fair deal or does this make sense to you? And it's funny because it comes full circle because like a lot of people that we've said this before, you were in oral surgery before I was. And so when I was applying, the person I bothered nonstop was you, but I asked you so many questions. You're like, yeah, this is what I did. This is what you should do. This is what I would do if I was in you, if I was applying again. And, and I took all that information and yeah, it worked out for me. And then I get a call when you're getting close to finishing. You're like, Hey, does this make sense? Does that make <laughs> yeah. sense? And I'm like, this is a funny full circle story, but yeah, you have to use people that you can trust in your circle who are a little bit ahead of you in certain aspects. Yeah. And I think, you know, going forward, there's way too much that I learned and way too much in the process to talk about in one podcast episode. I think I'd like to kind of break it down over time and explain to people the different steps you go through and, and ways to think about it and, and the people you have to talk to. But by far, the overarching advice I would give is that you need three people to make this happen properly. And you need to have like 100% trust and faith in those three people. You need a lawyer that you trust and his experience. You need an accountant that you trust as an experience. And you need a mentor or someone that you can bounce ideas off, off of that you trust. So for me, obviously I had a great lawyer, I had a great accountant, and you were that person I could bounce things off of. And it's tough because you need, <laughs> <laughs> you've worked hard enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people would say, oh, well, that's, that's easy. You know people, you know people in Canada, you know Oscar, it's easy, but it's not you. It, like, especially for us being in the same city, people would think, oh, but isn't that a conflict? But you you really have to find someone that you can trust, that it's not a conflict of interest, and that even if it is, you feel like they're going to be straight up with you and, and maybe even tell you this is a bad idea or this is a good idea or this is what you should be asking. Full disclosure, if someone is a good enough friend for you, they're not going to care that maybe it affects them in a negative way a little bit because they're gonna it's going to be positive for you. You need to find people that, like you said, you can trust with everything, not just you can trust them as long as it benefits them and it doesn't take into their side. You are, yeah, you, we've become very, very close friends. So I appreciate that, that I was that person for you, but we talked about, cause there was at one point where you were potentially thinking of joining us and then you eventually told, and I was excited about that cause I thought that was going to be awesome. But then you told me the truth. You're like, no, what? It's, it's not going to be for me, but that mm -hmm. didn't say, okay, now I don't want to help this guy. It's like, no, okay. You made that decision. Now what makes sense for you? Yeah. Exactly. And another thing I realized is that the other thing you need from the mentor is you need to trust. And one of the reasons I say you need to trust them is not only because people are going to think you need to trust them to give you a good answer. You need to trust them because you need to ask them a lot of stupid, selfish, dumb questions. There were so many times where I would ask you and I would say, am I crazy for nickeling and diming this one thing or asking about this one thing? And you would say, no, this is your life. This is your money. This is your loan. This is your 
credit. This is, you know, we get used to being residents where we like to make people happy. Yeah. And especially people who are above us, we like to be like, okay, we're the best resident is the resident that makes things work and doesn't cause problems. Mm-hmm. At some point you graduate from being a resident and now you have to be, especially like you, where you're going to own your practice, you have to be your own boss. So you can't just play second fit all the time. You have to be like, no, this doesn't work for me. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm really excited to residents. If you can, like, if, if you, we can like almost dedicate one podcast or one segment of each podcast for a couple of weeks on that, that would be huge for all outgoing residents. Yeah. Because I think it's one of the biggest transitions that we go through in life. And I have to say that I got really lucky. So it's going to be really easy for me to kind of detail all the steps I had to go through and what's involved. I was really fortunate and I got really lucky in so many ways, just meeting Dan and the timing and all that type of stuff. Like I it's said, you the, can't meet a guy that will say something bad about Dan O'Meara. No, nah, I've never met someone. He, like you won't. It's impossible. Yeah. It was a depressing day when I realized that no one else is going to be as good as that. No, we'll never no. have that like, reputation. He's as nice as in the community as you're going to find. <laughs> yeah. No one's ever going to think of us that way, unfortunately. But hey, listen, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Hey, we have a podcast. So that's exciting. And as you said, I'd like to talk about it more in the future. But I just wanted to announce that it's in Brampton, obviously, the same practice I've been working at since the beginning. It's called Four Corners Oral Surgery. We changed the name because before it was just called Dr. Daniel Amura. And yeah. it didn't really make sense for that to be the name You're anymore. Like, so can I change this or are we going with this? <laughs> yeah. So uh, Four Corners Oral Surgery, because the major intersection we're right next to, Highway 10 and Queen, is actually known in Brampton as like downtown as the Four Corners, because that intersection, the Four Corners were like the Four Banks. And I didn't realize that, but people in Brampton all know that. So that's why we went with that name. So it's been pretty fun. You have to come with the name, a logo, a website. I was going to say, who helped with the name? So it's actually one of my uh, really good friends from dental school. Her husband is uh, born and raised and grew up in Brampton. So he said, oh, where's your office? And on Queen Street, just west of Maine. And he goes, oh, right by the Four Corners. So I was like, wait, whoa, 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 what? This is like a known thing. So funny. That's perfect, eh? Yeah. So, well, this is one part of the thing you have to think of is you have to think of if, when you think of a name, you know, people come up with it geographically or they come up with what, what do they want to be known for? So some people want to be like, you know, implants something if they want to be known for that or if they want to be known for a geographical location, you'll think, you know, downtown Toronto oral surgery, stuff like that. So for us, it worked out well because it's kind of a catchy name. Uh, we got a good logo. And then also for people in Brampton, they know they kind of identify like with it, that. It's actually known for that. So that's actually, to me, I think that's perfect. Yeah. So th- that worked out well. So that's, that's how we came up with the name. I will say already, you know, I've only been an owner for a month now and I used to go, go to work, work for the day. I'd finish my notes by the time I was done. I was done already done my notes. I was doing them in between patients. Clock out, change, leave. I never stayed late once. I was never there after hours. I never thought about work when I left. It was just like, show up, work, leave, bye get a paycheck. And I remember Dan always used to be there late. And I remember just thinking to myself, yeah, but he takes longer to write notes. He's not as efficient. I'm not as as efficient (laughs) or he likes to do things his own way. And now I realize it's all the admin work. He's there doing, you you have no time to do your notes because you're dealing with 4,000 calls, 4,000 invoices, all these questions, all these people asking you questions, all these like emergencies you have to deal with right now. You have to deal with, oh, what are the protocols? Who can we accept? Who And throw a pandemic in there? Come on. Yeah, it's nuts. (laughs) So already it's a bigger headache. And I kind of, I'm kind of, so Dan's obviously still around as an associate and he's loving life. Because I told him, I said, this is the greatest part of your career. You just show up working late. He's like, I should have done this 20 years ago. (laughs) That's what I told him. He said, yeah, I should have done this a while ago. But now I'm jealous of you because you just show up, work and leave. Yeah, and it is like, we'll be be in the office, let's say with two of the partners there. 
and I finish my patients and we all finish our patients at the same time. And I pack up my laptop and I'm like, see you guys. And I see them just like sending emails, answering <laughs> calls. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's obviously pros and cons to being an owner and there's solo practice like, like I, I am or with one associate with Dan. Then there's small partnerships, you know, three or four people. Then there's bigger groups like you guys. So obviously the vibe is going to be different at each each place, but there's pros and cons to everything. But one thing I will say is you have to accept that when you're an owner, there's a million times more headaches. You got to deal with staff schedules, people calling sick, COVID right now, supplies for the office, masks, N95. You can't really turn it off. Yeah. it's Oh, I, I can't turn it off anymore. I get home, you know, I'll eat, I'll play with the kid, we put him to bed, have dinner, have a quick chat. And then it's just like back on emails you didn't get to during the day all the time. It's it, You don't turn it off. I'm, I'm hoping that it's just the transition time right now. I know this will be the busy time because you got to get all the contracts, you got to get all the people in order. So I am hoping maybe six months from now, things will kind of, yeah, be a little more efficient and streamlined. But right now it's crazy. And then honestly, also, hopefully you don't have that much uncertainty in, in six months. Like COVID is more under control because right now, like you said, every other day you're going to get a sick call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're replacing that person, right? So right now is probably the most uncertain time because you're going through the transition, but the most uncertain time because we have this huge wave that's ripping through Ontario right now. Yeah. And the other thing I realized in the next topic I wanted to bring up with you is once you're an owner and you actually start caring about the financial side more, because the difference is when you're an associate, you show up, you work. And as long as you know the patient pays, you get a percentage of that collection what you did. of what you did. So you just, you know, working and getting paid, it kind of makes sense. When you're an owner, it's totally different. You get paid just based on all the revenue you get minus your overhead. So all of a sudden you start caying about things like overhead. And like, it starts- are you using three gauzes today? What are you doing there? <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's like wait, wait don't touch that local syringe if i'm not going to use it <laughs> you can put this light king back i only need one for 14 <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny you mentioned that we'll get into that later with my new year's resolution but you start realizing yeah all the financial size that you never really thought about or knew about before and one thing i wanted to ask you about was when you see a patient for a consultation for a procedure do you write like at the end of the consult when you realize what your treatment plan is going to be you've explained to the patient do you write the code, like you write the codes for what you did, maybe the console code, maybe an x-ray code. And then do you write the codes for what you're going to do the next visit, like the surgery visit? All our patients leave with an estimate. Okay. So you write on a paper, go to the front, they put in the codes, Ontario fee guide, they get an estimate, they have a printer that they can submit to their insurance if they want, get it, figure out how much is covered. And then they come back for the procedure. You got it. Yeah. So you're giving them an estimate, they come for the procedure. And am I correct in saying that no matter what happens during that procedure, the estimate's never going to change. You're never going to charge more. Yeah. So no, I would never charge more. But if it's, let's say it's an implant, right? That you might be grafting at the same time. We, I will always overquote. Okay. Because I can take away like, and, and again, like wisdom teeth, is very straightforward, right? It's like seven, two, 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 one, 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 seven, one, what all those five units or six units or whatever you're using for sedation. So that's pretty standard. So that doesn't change. Right. Okay. But the ones that would change are more an implant case where you're putting an implant and you tell them, or you're taking a tooth out and it's plus minus socket preservation. And you don't know until you go in there and you're like, okay, there's a whole blown out wall. I'm going to do one for you here, or I'm not going to do it. So I will always default to putting that code in, but I tell the patient that I'm like plus minus. I'm like, you see this, I show it to them. I'm like, this is in case we need to do the extra. If not, you don't have to do it. So don't worry about it. Yeah, um, but no, I'm not going to add anything extra. So that makes sense. And I would do the same thing. And Dan would do the same thing. You kind of quote everything that's possible. And then but you tell them this is a plus minus. If we don't do it. We're obviously not going to charge you. And you always kind of overestimate because it's easy to decrease. But then you realize that, you know, sometimes you look at a wisdom teeth and you code the different four teeth. And then 
one of them ends up just being way, way, way more complicated. Like sometimes you see an erupted wisdom tooth and you're like, oh, this is the code. And it ends up being a nightmare. And, you know, it just, but you can never, you can never upcode. You can never go up. And it's made me realize that this whole notion of this estimate, it's not an estimate. Like we're, we're, we're handcuffed to this number because I, I've had patients where I pretty much honor the estimate every time. And then it's like, if, if by chance I forgot that I needed another PA because it's a follow-up and you take a PA, you know, they'll say like, oh, but this wasn't in the estimate. And I'm just thinking like, yeah, but that was an estimate. And also in my mind, I'm thinking, damn it, I forgot to put this. So now do I charge them? Do I not charge them? They're going to get mad. Is it not worth it? Just, you know, take the loss. It's not, it's not worth it. But at the same time, it's like, what's the point of an estimate? It's not an estimate. It's now it's just like, this is the guaranteed price, no matter what. This is the contract. Yeah, yeah, this is our contract that we're entering into. And wait till you, so like, you may not see as much going forward because the world won't stop like it has stopped the last two years a couple of times. But the estimate, how long does an estimate last? That was, that was my next question. So for me, I think our estimates last until the year finishes because we just follow the guide. Well, exactly. So that's, I would say that's standard, right? For most people, it's a year and then the fee guide will change. So unfortunately not. But what happens if the patient comes and says, hey, I came to see you right at the end of, like right at the beginning of 2020, but the pandemic happened and I couldn't come because I was too scared to come see you. Are you going to honor it? Yes. You are going to honor it, right? But they're coming a year and a half later and the fees are almost two fee guides different now. But yes. you're still honoring it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and especially when you start seeing consoles at like November, December, and you're like, which number am I supposed to give for them? Because when is their surgery going to be booked? And is it going to Those are the change? ones you tell them that you're going to do the estimate in January. <laughs> That's smart. They'd be like, we don't, we don't know what it is, but here, here, we'll call you Jan first. My computer's down right now. I can't put your codes in. <laughs> <laughs> but January 1st, the system will be back up. Yeah, it'll be rebooted again. I also went through my first fun experience of, you know, the new feed guy coming out Jan 1st, because you're kind of like, oh, what's, what's, what's the codes and what's the numbers we used to? And most of the time, it's like a standard whatever percentage increases based on inflation or however they calculate it. But every now and then you get some codes where you're like, dude, like, why didn't this go up more? This is like the hardest procedure I do. Oh. Like there, there's so many codes in the fee guide that I'm like, who decides these? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or I'm just like that. Some of them don't make sense. Like, like, yeah. Some of the path codes to me just make no sense. Yeah. The path codes don't make sense. And also there's other codes where I'm like, damn, this is a nice code. And I wish I could use it and charge the patient, but the patient would murder me. Like, I think there's a follow-up code to discuss the results of a scan. I didn't even know there was that code. I think it might be new this year, but I found it and I was like, this is amazing. So if you order a CT scan, you got to read the CT scan, you got to look at the report and you got to discuss it with the patient. There's a code, you can build them for it. I think it's like 80 bucks or a hundred bucks. I can't remember what, maybe 110 bucks. There's no way you're going to be able to charge the patient that. No, no way. Like you're like going to review that scan, but you're going to review the scan, but you're not going to get the treatment. Yeah, now. you're going to be legally responsible for the scan, but you're not yeah. going to get paid. It's like, oh, I think you might have a tumor. So we're going to send you for a CT scan and they come back and they're really worried about it. And you're like, good news. You have a cyst and it doesn't look that bad. And we have to do a biopsy. Better but news, I, it's only $100 for me to tell you that information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's some codes in there that I feel like we can never charge for, but it was, uh, it was interesting to go through the fee guide once and just see what's on there. Yeah. And like, and honestly, you'll do it. Moving forward, you won't look at all the codes. You just look at the ones you do use all the time. And you're going to be like, okay, what was the change in that code? Yeah. And a lot of stuff, as you said, just has to be a write-off. You're just like, I can't charge the patient for this. I'm just going to write off. I have another great example that I wanted to share with you. Patient had uh, mandibular trauma last year. So was treated by a different surgeon, kept missing follow-ups, kept never showing up. I was referred to our office. Finally, he shows up on like the fifth appointment post-op. He still has his like 
MMF screws in. He still has hardware and he's just been having it for like a year or something. I'm like, oh my God. So I get an x-ray. Everything seems to be okay. Who knows? But the MMF screws are there. So I said, okay, I'm going to remove those. Like, obviously, I'm going to remove these. And I'm just like, whatever. I think there's a remove hardware code, but I'm like, obviously, I'm not going to charge this guy. So I removed the hardware and the guy's like so happy. He's like, oh, finally, I feel so much better. Thanks for doing that. And he goes into his wallet and he opens his wallet and gives me a $10 bill. So I said, what, what is this? He's like, that's a tip. Tip for what? And I said, what do you mean a tip? He's like, no, no, we're not charging. He's like, no, no, I know. But this is like a tip. Like you did a good job. So I'm tipping you. <laughs> so, so I was, I was laughing so hard because first of all, I've never been tipped before. That is I'm going to start asking for a tip in our profession, even though we do provide a service, we're never tipped. No one would ever think of tipping your surgeon like they would think of is, tipping other that professions. That might be one of the, especially that you got $10 and zero for the whole procedure. <laughs> Keep in mind, at McGill, we would cure people's cancer. We wouldn't get tipped. Yeah, that is, oh, that is gold. So we offered me a tip. Well, I, I want to let the record reflect. I declined the tip. I laughed about it. And then my front desk staff were so mad. They were like, you could have bought us all coffee. You should have taken the tip. Come on. We booked this guy. That is too good though. That is really funny. And you know what? Classy on him for offering a tip because he even <laughs> when you told him there's no charge. He's like, oh, I know. I know there's no charge. Yeah. <laughs> like he wasn't even worried that you were going to charge him. He's like, you did a good job. This is, yeah. a, this is a tip for you. And then another thing you have to deal with as an owner is just like random situations that you've never thought of before. So we were working in the day and the fire alarm went off in the building. I don't know if you've had this before. That's the worst. Yeah, because thank God we were in between patients. We had just set up a patient for sedation. This was like last month. But so the IV pole was there. The IV was in, but nothing had been started. So we just wheeled her out with a blanket and an IV pole. And we're waiting for the fire truck people to come. Fire Firemen. Wow. But, How old are you? The fire truck people? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, you actually know why I said that. No. Lennox. Dude, once you have a once you have a baby, you start seeing all this stuff. So he's obsessed with trucks. He's obsessed with fire trucks. All I see all day is oh, fire truck, fire truck. Like that's actually why I said that. Uh, my wife's gonna laugh when I tell her that story. And as soon as I said fire truck people, I started internally panic because I was like, wait, what are their names? What is the real name? <laughs> oh my god. So I was gonna ask you, what do you do though? Fire alarm goes off and you're in the middle of sedation. So honestly, that funny you say that too. I've never actually had. One, I've had two fire alarms and both of them were, one was right, like yours, right before we put the, like the prisoner to sleep, like literally right before. And one is when we had just finished bringing them to recovery. So I've never actually been stuck in the middle of a surgery, but I feel like you, you can't do anything. Like I would stop the surgery and then try to like, let them wake up. And then as soon as they're waking up, then, then move them out of the room. The problem is if there's an actual fire though, you can't just kind of dawdle around in the office. No, no, a hundred percent. But I'm hoping that the patient wakes up quick enough and that we don't have like this inferno that's raging. Yeah. Because the other thing I was doing was like, even if you, even you try and push all the reversals and try and wake them up and you're thinking, okay, wait, well, just forget it. Just like, you know, put them in a wheelchair and transport them out. The problem is like, yeah, you might avoid a fire that's slowly getting worse, but you have no monitors outside. You, you, you can't manage them outside. So that's a tough situation. It's pretty scary for sure. We're on the fifth floor in our yeah. one office. So that's, it's even a little bit more challenging. Like if you're on the main floor, okay, you get out, whatever. No, we're on the second floor. So you're on the, oh, so you're on the second floor too. So yeah, you got to go in an elevator. It's, it's yeah. not as easy. And remember, you're not supposed to use elevators during a fire. Look at this guy, fire marshal over here. <laughs> fire, fire truck person. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a vest? <laughs> Anyways, that's enough about me becoming an owner in the practice. As I said, I do want to talk about it in the future. I mean, it's super, super exciting and, and, and really, really rewarding. So I'm really excited to kind of transition and, and come and, you know, take over that. 
that's uh, that's kind of the biggest news that I wanted to share for this episode. I think that's as big as we're going to get probably for the year. Yeah. Yeah. So now everyone's up to date with uh, what you know and what I know. And now everyone kind of knows. So we'll talk about that going forward. Now, why don't we jump into our New Year's resolution segment? So, Oscar, before we talk about our New Year's resolutions, I think it's always important. And what we said last year is that we need to look back on the previous year and see, did we hold up our end of the bargain? Did we actually follow our New Year's resolution? So I'll go first. I remember your New Year's resolution being that you didn't want to just settle. You didn't want to kind of get into the routine and rut of private practice. You wanted to keep challenging yourself and you wanted to keep learning and pushing yourself. So if you objectively look at the past year, do you think that you accomplished your resolution? Yes. Yes and no. So yes, I did, but probably not in the way I thought I was going to do it. I, I maybe took settle as in doing the same thing over and over again and, and not expanding necessarily just in the career wise. But I feel like I more didn't settle in overall life, right? Oral surgery, yeah, I grew. I maybe realized things I didn't like or things that I, I do going to the OR, not going to the OR, stuff like that. But also in life, I didn't settle. I think we had a lot of big life moments with Lex. And so I think I, we de- I definitely was able to accomplish that. Got married, got a house. So you got a house and got married. It was a big year for you. That's what I mean. So I think the settling part, we, yeah, I definitely, definitely accomplished that, I would say, yes. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And then for me on my end, it was... I know that I'm going to encounter a big complication and I didn't want to let that kind of change the way I practice, change the way I operate, kind of really affect me. I've been fortunate that so far I haven't had that major, major complication. I know it's coming. It's scary to think about. Yeah, it's going to happen eventually. So far, lucky, knock on wood, that it hasn't uh, happened yet. But my goal is still the same, which is not... Uh, to let it affect my practice. But I will say, kind of as a proactive approach, I am documenting all my major cases. So not like prior practice stuff, but all my major hospital cases. I'm documenting any complications that happen. And I'm trying to be 100% brutally honest about it. So I think that's smart. On my surgical log, I'm, I'm documenting all my complications. And my goal is, especially for orthognathic, that after my first 1,000 cases, I'd like to to see and publish kind of First 1,000 cases after fellowship or graduating residency, what was the complication rate? And what could help it? What could prevent it? Is it normal? Is it average? That kind of stuff. And is it is it big complications? Is it smaller things that you overlooked that maybe didn't seem important when you're in fellowship? And now that you're a year, two years, three years, 10 years out, you realize, oh, these little things actually are important. I think mm-hmm. that's a great idea. Yeah. And, and as I said, even if it's a small one. You know, soft tissue tearing, that shouldn't have happened. Uh, lip burning, burr hitting something. The only something. way you're going to get really really get better if you critique yourself yeah so i'm documenting everything and we'll see after the first thousand cases it'll take a while to get there obviously but but that's my goal so the complications coming luckily it hasn't come yet but that's still my so that, that new year's resolution will continue i guess until i have that first major complication but for now we'll see how things go but that brings us up to this year now 2022 so do you have we a new have, one for this year we have to make a new one for this year so oscar i'll let you go first what is your new year's resolution for this year, you know, podcast or oral surgery related, obviously. Oral surgery related. It's funny. So I thought about this because I knew that we were going to talk about this today. And and now you kind of said you're taking it on for another year. So it kind of sucks because I'm going to steal it from you is that, yeah, I do think the longer you're in practice, the more likely you are to have a complication. 
Mine may not be as major because when I'm in the OR, I'm more an assist. I'm not, these are not my cases that I'm doing the orthodontics myself. I go as an assistant every other week. So it won't really, but even in private practice, you can have complications and we're all going to have them. And it's not that I don't want to have complications. Well, that's a lie. And no one wants to have complications, Mm -hmm. but that's not my goal. My goal is kind of what you talked about to not let that complication then dictate how we're going to continue to practice in my career and, and not let it affect future judgments and and kind of worry you and over worry and be okay that a complication is going to happen and be okay to deal with it. So it's more having the confidence to know that these will happen. And my goal is to be okay when it does not to be fine and happy with it, to be okay to deal with it. Yeah. And you bring up a good point though. Complications don't have to only happen in the big cases. In fact, a lot of times the complications in big cases are easier to deal with because it's big surgery. Yeah. Big surgeries, big complications, more risk. Sometimes the routine stuff in private practice, like one of my biggest fears would be routine wisdom. You know, that, that case you always hear about, which is like a young, healthy person, routine wisdom tooth, chronic infection, osteomyelitis. Like that's one of my biggest fears would be something like that or or transecting a nerve during wisdom teeth or extraction, you know, implants. And when you're doing that many cases a, a year, the odds are not in your favor that something isn't going to go wrong at some point. Yeah. So just because you're doing, you know, bread and butter stuff, teeth and titanium stuff in your office, it doesn't mean the complications won't happen or that they won't affect you. Because in some ways, oh, and it's a private practice patient paying in their own money versus maybe an OHIP covered free government procedure. So sometimes those hurt even more. Yeah, no, I agree. So what are you doing? So my news resolution is very, very, very related to something that you said before and about being a new owner. And as I mentioned, once you're a new owner, you make money based on revenue minus overhead. And it's very easy to get bogged down in the finances of the practice and of especially the overhead. And you can really, really start going in the weeds and nickel and diming. Obviously, you want to be efficient. You don't want to be wasteful. But you brought up a great example of, you know, maybe I'll use one local for four teeth. Maybe I'll put less gauze. And my resolution for this year and kind of my goal really is to not get bogged down in the numbers of ownership in a way that either makes surgery more difficult, people more stressed out or compromises patient care. You're not going to cut the bib in half so you get two bibs at a one. <laughs> well, I wasn't before, but that's a great idea. This bib is such a waste. It's so huge. That's yeah, like, who needs all that? Just give me half. One example that I had thought of was, oh, so when I was an associate, yeah, as I said, you show up, you work, you use whatever you need to use. You're not wasting, but you're also not thinking about this type of stuff. Once you're an owner, you're doing a sedation and you're on the, throwing that last stitch, but the patient starts moving a little bit. And you're like, okay, I'll give more probe, but they've already finished the bottle. So you're going to open a new bottle just for that. And you're like, oh, this is going to kill me. So these are the, you can go into the weeds and stuff. So I'm trying to think of it as like, it doesn't matter. The patient needs what the patient needs. Like, don't even tell me if I just order, just whatever, draw it up, if, do whatever you if you're do, on, If you're on that last stitch, you'll let the patient walk out before you open that next bottle of probe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The owners are probably thinking, what if this guy's not going to last for a yeah. year? Yeah. You're like, shh to the patient you're asleep don't worry (laughs) other times another funny example was uh, uh, i'm stitching and i got one uh, i finished stitching everything and then one area i was like "Mm, i could add another one or i could not it's kind of up to me i was like you know what i said i I, I told my sister i'm gonna throw one more stitch he's like okay no problem 
And as I'm grasping the needle, it, I don't know, the, the needle kind of slipped or the hemostat kind of, you know, opened a little bit and the needle fell to the ground. We're done here. So I was thinking like, now I got to open a whole brand new, new suture just for this stitch that I was debating or not debating, even placing. So. So you walked out. We're done here for sure. Listen, secondary intention is a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying, man. I opened a new stitch, but I was, I was dying inside. I was thinking like, this is killing me. Yeah, no. And and it is, it, it's different because I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I grew up in a household where my dad grew up with very little money and then became successful. Both my parents are dentists and became successful, but my dad is a pretty frugal person. So when I go into our room sometimes in our, in our office, even though I'm not an owner, I see the amount of gauze that the assistants are setting up and it drives me crazy. Like yeah. it actually irks me. I'm like, do you understand how much money you're wasting? Like I'm not, I could stop the Hoover dam of bleeding with how much gauze there sometimes <laughs> is on our trays. And I'm like, I don't need this. This is a single tooth. Why do we have, or, or there'll be like seven Lido's on our tray when we're doing two teeth. I'm like, and I just start, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I'm not an owner. If I was an owner, I would go crazy. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. You can really get bogged down in the weeds of these things. So that's why that's my resolution is not to go crazy with this stuff. Just treat it like when I was an associate. Don't be wasteful, but use what you need to use to get a good result. And, 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 and so the patient care doesn't get compromised. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And the grand scheme of things, these things like in small amounts, like an extra suture or an extra probe thing. Yeah, it's eating into your profit. But in the long term, that one time the patient moves because you didn't get more probe. And the stitch hits their tongue or it doesn't, yeah, you know what I mean? Cuts it's their lip or it gets your, it gets your assistant, gets yeah. you. Like it's not worth the headache. It yeah. really isn't for the peace of mind you're going to get. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's my news resolution and we'll see how it goes. I like that. All right. That concludes our news resolution segment. Let's jump into journal club. Okay, Oscar. So we had done a lot of prep on Journal Club for December and January. We had a, we had a bunch of articles to go through. It feels like we're reviewing an entire journal. I was about to say, are we doing the whole journal? Or? <laughs> <laughs> so we figured, you know, why throw December away? We already did the prep work. We already had a nice article we wanted to talk to. And we want this, you know, episode, we wanted to combine our resident reminder section into the journal club just because we have so much to talk about. So this is kind of a combined segment. So let's talk about our first article here. This is from December, Jameis. It's the Treatment of Frontal Sinus Fractures, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. It's by Al Moraisi et al. But of note, it includes the supervising um, author is Edward Ellis. So whenever you talk about trauma, you see Ed Ellis, usually it's always going to be a great, great article and some great data. So definitely passes our pre-screening test. Yeah, I think we that have, was a no-brainer. Exactly. You see his name, you're like, I'm going to read this article. Yeah, and we have all the, you know, all the authors are, are with oral surgery, they're professors, the staff, the head of the department when it comes to Ed Ellis. So they wanted to talk about frontal sinus fractures. And a common theme that we're going to have, not only during this Journal Club segment, but just in general, is the aggressive use of acronyms. We've talked about this before, but this is getting out of control. And I'm trying to think maybe I'm wrong in the sense that people are not inventing acronyms that make no sense because they think that those are going to continue. I guess it's just to make the article easier to write and flow better. I think honestly, the more we, the more we bash on them, the more I agree that this is the reason. It's not that they think this is going to catch on. I just think this is just for ease of reading. That's what it is. Yeah. Because you're going to see some of these acronyms this time are they're just ridiculous. And I no just ignored them. Yeah, no one's ever used this before. But I'm really starting to think that maybe we're newer to this since we've only been really 
critically appraising and reading all these articles now for two years. We used to read articles back in the day, but we weren't going as intensely into them as we are now. So they talk about frontal sinus fractures and they call them F FSFs. I feel like, yeah, fs, fs, like something we're never going to use again. But anyways, that's what they wanted to talk about. And the, they said that there's controversy in the management of fs, And the question is whether any kind of treatment would prevent or cause such complications. Because basically what they're saying is, you know, for residents, we're always taught frontal sinus fractures. You talk about anterior table, posterior table. Anterior table, if it's uh, non-displaced, no cosmetic problems, just watch it. Just observe it. Anterior table that is displaced comes down to cosmetics. If it bothers them or it's a depression, you fix it. Um, if it doesn't bother them, you don't need to worry about it. You want to do a coronal or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maximum <laughs> resident benefit. Yeah, exactly. Then when it comes to posterior table, you're thinking, okay, if it's non-displaced, you just observe, do nothing. If it's displaced, you have to think about is the duct involved? Are you teaming up with neurosurgery to do a cranialization? So removing the posterior table. Or are you also combining that with an obliteration? So you're filling, you know, getting rid of all the mucosa from the sinus and filling it with something. So you have a lot of different options when it comes to these frontal sinus fractures, but there is some controversy because we all kind of follow these arbitrary rules about, you know, one table thickness of displacement or is the tract involved, even though the tract is usually just like a tract and not a duct. And it seems like we all follow the same rules, but the rules are not really based on that much. And we all look at the rules like you're kind of squinting with one eye. You're like, I'm like, maybe, sure, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So based on the literature, they want to do this meta-analysis and they, hypo they hypothesize the following, that there's no difference in the rate of post-op complications using the different treatments and that observation treatment with sinus preservation will significantly decrease the incidence of post-operative complications when compared to surgical treatment. And then they also wanted to say that the incidence of post-operative complications following different treatments for patients with with involvement of the nasofrontal tract or without it is going to be the same. So they bring up this big point, which is you can observe or do something and there'll be no difference. And also when you treat, you can deal with the duct or the tract and not, or not deal with it and it makes no difference. So now that we get into the methods, you know, when any, with any kind of systematic, you know, review, meta-analysis, I think the number one most important thing is always to look at the inclusion and exclusion criteria because that really whittles down what they're actually looking at and, and the validity of the study. And I, also, I always love meta-analysis because it's always a competition to see how big can you make that first number of articles yeah. before you then whittle so you it down, it to, down like, to like three. Yeah, it's always, it's always such a low amount after you whittle it down. So these guys started with 636 and they went down to 23. So actually 23 is not bad. Yeah, that isn't bad, actually. That's actually pretty good. Usually it's a lot less than that. So 23 studies were included in the final review. And in total, 2,911 patients who sustained a frontal bone fracture. So I thought that was a lot of people. That's not a little number right there. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of people. So that's good data, I thought. Or a good number, I mean. Observation was the most common intervention for non-displaced fractures. That's good. We agree with that. Open reduction internal fixation with sinus preservation was done for most displaced anterior table with intact nasofrontal ducts. So we like that too. Because we said anterior table is displaced is a cosmetic thing. You don't really have to intervene with the sinus and do that. So we like that too. Obliteration and cranialization was done for displaced or comminuted posterior table fractures with an injured nasofrontal duct. Again, and yeah. We like that too. So, so far, it seems like everyone is doing, once again, what we've been taught, 
is like the algorithm. Like we all seem to have the same algorithm that we all follow. So, I mean, it seems to be working for people. So they wanted to analyze and say, you know, is this working and, and, and should we be changing anything? So in the discussion, they said the findings from our study indicate that most treatments for fractures of the frontal sinus have a complication rate in the seven to 11% range with observation having the lowest and sinus obliteration having the highest. So the first thing I want to say is, and I don't know if you agree with me, Oscar, is that one reason I really like systemic reviews and meta-analysis is they almost always never come to like really big definitive conclusions because they always say the data was poor. Uh, you can't compare the studies. The variables were different biases, blah, blah, blah. But I find they're really good at getting like a big patient volume and then giving you percentages of, of like different things that can happen to kind of frame in your mind, like having a complication rate around 10%. That's good to know. And it, when I did read that number, I'm like, yeah, seven to 11, I'm like 10% for frontal sinus injury complication. Rate, that's, that's a good number. Yeah. Yeah. And now like, it's a number you can quote too. It's a number you can quote to patients because patients always want to know, well, is this a big risk? What are the complications? It's nice saying, yeah, 10% of the time there could be a complication. It could be this, this is one thing I will say. And they, they kind of agree with this is that it says observation is the lowest complication rate and sinus obliteration is the highest, but this is a great example of selection bias. That's it's not fair. Yeah. You're not observing a massively comminuted fracture. Yes. So the ones you're observing are probably minor to begin with. So obviously they're less likely to have a complication. So it's not apples to apples. Yeah, exactly. You're observing a paper cut versus a broken arm. Yeah. And I feel like that's a nuance that's so obvious to us now, but probably when we were a junior residents, we would, we would just think like, oh, so maybe observing is better. Like we might not have that nuance kind of approach to analyzing the data that way. It's something, it's a thing that a lot of people don't realize when they'll just second, like, I'm, I don't know if you're watching the news. When they were documenting, oh, how many people are vaccinated, how many people are not vaccinated getting the virus. And mm -hmm. all the anti-vaxxers are like, see, it's the same percentage. Like, yeah, but the whole population is vaccinated and you have the same amount of. And so yes. there's a huge bias there. It's yes. not the same population, right? So it's yeah. the same thing here. Yeah, exactly. So it's a good way of learning how to critically appraise the data and kind of think not outside the box, but you have to take every point with a grain of salt and see, are you comparing like for like? They found uh, a decrease in the prevalence of postoperative complications after various treatments for patients without tract injury versus those with involvement, which once again makes sense based on what we just said, which is that if you have involvement in the tract, you need a larger surgery and they have to do more. So you're more likely to have complications because you had to do more surgery and a more complicated surgery. So overall, they said observation is good for minor fractures and it provides good outcomes. But when it's used for complicated fractures, the complication rate increases greatly. Which no is brainer. common sense, but good that they put it. And then summarizing, frontal sinus fractures vary in their severity and treatments. The more severe the fractures, the higher complication rate, no matter how they were treated. That's, that's why I found that funny, because I'm like, thank you. Thank you for telling us that. Yeah. So I actually wrote a note here, and I said, this paper is similar to Game of Thrones. And the reason I wrote that note, and I want to bring up with you, as Game of Thrones started off so well, and it just became the greatest thing ever, and then like the last two seasons, it just became absolute trash. And I found this paper, it was so promising, and I still like it because as I said, it gives you some percentages and some things to think about. It started off so, so well, it was getting better and better, I'm just loving it. And then right at the end, it's like, yeah, observation is fine unless it's complex, and if it's complex, it's probably gonna be really hard to treat. Honestly, I felt very similar. I thought it was a well-written article. The only thing that really irritated me was pretty much that last concluding statement where it says, yeah. they can vary how bad they are. And depending on how bad they are, the complications can vary also. It's like, <laughs> yeah. what? Yeah. So 
but once again, similar to how we were saying these acronyms are stupid, but they use them to make the, the articles read better. I think this is common, and I'm noticing a pattern with systemic, systematic reviews and meta-analysis is they tend to just finally get all the data, and then their conclusions are usually kind of useless because it's what you thought, and there's no real you know, conclusive data to change your mind. But it kind of reinforces what you, like, like now we're happy because the, all the studies, all the people are treating things, and it confirmed what we said how we would treat things. And what we're teaching the residents, the management of frontal sinus fractures. But it's important to know that, yeah, simple cases Harder things usually are more will simple. will likely have more complications. And complex cases, yeah, have more complications. So overall, that was our article from December. We also wanted to use as a springboard to talk about frontal sinus fractures because we hadn't mentioned that before. So that's something that you always get quiz on as a resident. And it's a good thing for them to, to think about and to review. And to so, actually review that algorithm because you're yes. going to get asked of it. You're going to ask that for sure. So you got to have the algorithm in your head. Interior table, posterior table, displaced, non-displaced, tract involvement, no tract involvement. That's pretty much the trees right there. Mm -hmm. Long-term follow-up, what can happen? Mucosil, pyocil can happen 20 years later, regular CT scans, or just clinical observation, especially observe them for the first five years. And then after that, just tell them to watch out for forehead swelling, headaches, stuff like that. And then have them in and get a CT scan if necessary because they can be developing a mucosil over time from retained mucosa. And now you can tell them that. If it's more complex, they're more likely to have a complication. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Good old meta-analysis. So that concludes December. Let's move on to January now. January, I had picked a bunch. And I will, I'll be honest with you, Oscar. I always try and find good articles that are either well-written or most of the time that will stimulate good conversation between you and I and something that, you know, is relevant. I... Definitely picked articles in January that I wanted to discuss and are like really things that I've been thinking about and I was really drawn to. So I feel like these articles are going to have a huge bias towards my interests. So in the future, I'll have to pick a month and find something that will be more biased towards your interests. No, no, I like this. I like, I like because you're probably going to get worked up. I'll laugh about it and then we'll discuss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, let's start off with an article I actually liked. So let's start off with. I know our perspectives, these kind of letter to the editors that we said we actually are really enjoying. So this one is cognitive bias hazards after an operative complication. I love this article. I love this article. It's by Cabin and Posick. So two huge, huge titans in the profession. And Cabin is at Harvard and Posnick is in Baltimore. And basically, this article really ties into what we were talking about complications and how they happen and how we react to them and new year's resolutions and new year's resolutions. And I highly, highly recommend everyone download this article and read it. We always put the links to the articles in the show notes. So look at the podcast uh, description. You can see links to every article. We've done that for every episode since the beginning. So the first thing they say is there's, I guess I didn't, so this really kind of clarified how people think about it and the biases that are involved. And the first thing that they talk about is the, the victim effect. So the first victim effect and the second victim effect. I didn't know this. So they say that whenever it comes to a complication, the first victim is the patient. That's obvious. They were the victim of the complication. But the second victim effect is the treating surgeon. And that's because you're having an emotional, behavioral, and cognitive negative sequelae to that complication. So it's affecting you as well. So they say a positive behavioral response to a complication on the part of the surgeon includes taking responsibility, full disclosure, and reflection about the case. I think that people are pretty good nowadays about taking responsibility for the most part. Some people obviously won't. Full disclosure, people I think are learning that honesty is the best policy. Just be upfront and honest right from the beginning. And it kind of 
gets this weight off your shoulder. And people usually respond well to just honesty. And then reflection about the case. We'll get to that. So it says, by immediately dealing with the error, analyzing and learning from the event, the surgeon's rapid return to a healthy mental state is likely. How the surgeon frames discussions with the family and patient after the complication will largely influence the recovery process for all parties. This can be facilitated by participating in an objective sounding board such as a specialty, morbidian mortality conference, or by asking for help in the management from a colleague who does not have the same level of emotional involvement. So let's break that down. So the first part is you have to immediately recognize and learn from the event, and that will help the surgeon's mental state. And I have to say, I could not agree with this more. As I said, I haven't had a major complication, but obviously I've had a lot of minor ones. And they weigh on you. Man, like it's a stressful profession, right? Like every mistake you go home, you think about it, you don't want to be grumpy at home, but it definitely weighs on you for sure. Yeah. So I think finally, once you accept it or you talk about it or you're able to move on, it really does lift a weight off your shoulders and you do feel a lot better about it. How you frame the discussion with the family can influence everyone. And I actually think it's way harder to beat around the bush because you, you're just building it up and it's like you're building up a climax versus if you just go and you're on and say, you know, Mrs. Jones, unfortunately, during the procedure, we encountered an artery. The nerve was right there. We transected the nerve. It was right in the way and we couldn't avoid it. But we did try and perform but it's, a it, It's out repair. in the open and it's done with. Exactly. You just, you yeah. just, you've got it out there. You've said it. They've heard it from you. And then what people don't realize is it makes every follow-up easier because everyone's on the same page. And you're not sitting there praying that things are going to miraculously get better so you don't have to tell them the truth or tell them the full story. You've told them everything. Yeah, yeah. it's out in the open, so they should know. The last part is where it gets a little more difficult. So it says, you know, you should reflect by speaking at an M&M or speaking to a colleague who doesn't have the same level of emotional involvement. And this is something I'll comment on because being part of both the hospital call system, there's M&M rounds there with their oral surgery group. And then being part of the university, obviously, at the faculty every month, we have M&M presentations. The residents actually do a really nice job. They document all their M&Ms, they present them, then they do a re review of the anatomy or what could have caused it, and um, then they classify the M&M. We did the same thing at McGill, and obviously you were doing the same thing all the time when you were a UFT resident, you were doing these presentations. The difficulty I find with M&M rounds is there's always an inherent social dynamic because these are your colleagues, this is your reputation amongst a small group of people that you work with. It's a little bit harder, I find, to be so open and vulnerable like you can be honest and you can talk with it but it's hard to be vulnerable you feel a little bit more defensive and i think this is where having a small group of colleagues where you can really talk to and trust and tell them about how a day went or a case went i think is important because if not this profession can be overwhelming or any profession can be overwhelming so yeah in an m&m setting sometimes you will become a little bit confrontational we're like oh i did it this way because i had to do this and, and you don't want to look bad but if you have that group of surgeons that you know will tell you the truth and may tell you, hey, this is why it was wrong, but you know they're not going to judge you, you'll be more open about having those discussions with them. Yeah, and I think there's a message to all the listeners where if you have a colleague that reaches out to you to discuss an M&M or a complication, in the same way that you have to be honest with the patient, be honest with the person. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't tell them, oh, no, that's great. No, that uh, just bad luck or it could happen to anyone. Just be like, honestly, I think maybe you could have managed it this way. And that's maybe what I would have done or maybe something to consider because I do feel like you doing it that way might have led to this complication or increase the risk. Like you got to be honest. Otherwise, if you're just if they're going to call you and you're going to enable them, it's a pointless call. And I really actually like the second part where it says 
speak to a colleague who doesn't have that same level of emotion involvement. I had one case that I was very emotionally involved with and it had a minor complication or the potential of a complication. You're still monitoring to see what's happening related to like nerve injury, things like that. So I actually called a colleague that has no connection to the case, but is very well known for nerve injuries. Chris Lee, obviously you're a good friend and partner of your practice. I called him and said, listen, Chris, I said, this happened and it's the first time it happened to me. And I, I think this is what I would do. And I think it's going to be fine. And I think this is the, the normal recovery, but this is what's going on. Is there anything I should be doing? Am I missing anything? Like, just tell it to me. And he said, no. He said, this is how it normally goes. This is the normal sequelae. This is what you gotta do. This is how you gotta monitor. It, it was nice because it got off my chest. I had an objective person tell me if what I was gonna do would be correct or incorrect. And you just feel a lot better knowing that you're not alone in the process. And, and that's what it also true that a lot of the things that are gonna happen to you have happened to somebody else and are gonna happen to other people in the future. Not feeling isolated will make you feel better. Yep. And then this part I love in the article, it starts talking about what happens if you don't do those things. So let's say you don't review with your colleagues, you don't acknowledge, you don't, you're honest. So it says the thought of having a similar complication in the future is so painful. You develop loss aversion. So you're trying to, you're trying to avoid that same loss, that same complication so bad that the surgeon will employ illogical strategies to avoid a repeat of the experience. You'll start adjusting your practice. You start adjusting your practice. So it says unchecked cognitive bias can easily cause the surgeon associated with the original complication to go with his gut when making future decisions rather than following the science. And we see this all the time where people say, oh, I just do it this way because I had this complication. It or works this way in my hands. Yeah, this way, <laughs> it works this way in my hands. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't know even what that means. Yeah. Yeah, or I had this one infection one time, so therefore, boom, everyone gets that. Or I did this this one time, therefore everyone does this. Or, you know, and a lot of times it compromises patient care, it delays treatment, it prolongs healing. Like it's, it's a lot of bad things happening because of that loss aversion. It's, and it's a human bias. It's not that person's fault, but we can all have that. And then they say that damage caused by this bias resulting from the emotional response to the complication is compounded. So it increases for years to come because the surgeon then shares these judgments as recommendations with residents in training. Which at that point was, was crazy, it's true. Because then you start passing this down to generations and You generations. start passing it down and this becomes the third victim effect. Yeah. So we're not talking about tips and tricks or techniques. Like someone's gonna prefer a burr or another, and that might be because they had a bad experience with the saw, so they'd rather use a burr. But listen, they're doing the sag, that's really good for them. They're more comfortable, better control, more precise. Yeah, the procedure might take a little bit longer. You're using an extra burr, but it's a good result. It's how they were trained. It's what they're more comfortable with. We're talking about when people have complications or they start doing irrational things. You know, like I don't want the resin to cut that side because I had a complication one time or everyone needs antibiotics for everything because I had an infection one time. Yeah, you like know? things that just don't make sense. I'm going to split without using a saw. I'm just going to use a chisel the whole way down. It's like, yeah. okay, that makes no sense. Yeah, so I think this is a great article. I really, really liked it. It's only two pages. I highly recommend everyone read it, no matter where you are in your stage of learning, because you might learn something about yourself and they have a really you know, useful table that's useful tips and things to avoid after a complication. And it's a table of everything you should do for yourself, everything you should do with the patient family, and when you're speaking, what you should do. So I just thought it was really, really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed that article. All right, Oscar, next up we have evaluation of an enhanced recovery after surgery protocol, ERAS, for same-day discharge and reduction of opioid use following bimaxillary orthognathic surgery. This is by 
Ferrara Tirani. This is a combination of an anesthesiologist, an attending surgeon, a statistician, and a resident physician. So pre-screening, we love that. That's pretty much like the, the perfect combination. You got the anesthesia side, you got the surgeon side, you have a resident to do all the grunt work, and then you have a statistician to do all the stuff we don't understand. That's exactly what you'd ask for. It's the dream team. One thing I found funny is that this is in the anesthesia, TMJ disorders, and facial pain section of the journal. I guess they're trying to say anesthesia is important, but I thought it was a little bit weird. Like there is like a cranium maxillofacial facial surgery, like orthognathic section. I thought this was kind of in a weird section, but maybe that's just a classification thing. Who knows how they determine that? Once again, maxillary and mandibular osteotomies known as MMO. That one was useless. Like what, what acronyms? What are we doing yeah. here? So they're talking about, you know, hospital admissions for at least one night in duration remains the standard of care for any orthognathic procedure. And we're going to have to compare the U.S. to Canada, but I will say in Canada, the standard is one night for orthognathic surgery, whether it's single jaw, double jaw, pretty much everyone is routinely doing that. And I would say that's the average for sure. It says the rationale for inpatient care has been based on the presumptive need to manage the recovery from anesthesia, potential airway compromise, uncontrolled pain, monitoring of hemodynamic status, and resumption of oral intake and ambulation. I'll agree with that as well. That is the main reasons that people admit people. And they said they developed an enhanced recovery after surgery. This acronym is E-R-A-S or ERAS. This one I like because that is a known acronym. That's like a known thing. Every every people have ERAS protocols. That's a known thing. They didn't make this up. Well, yeah, they, yeah. they, 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 they used something that wasn't already known. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a retrospective study, observational, and evaluated outcomes for patients undergoing MMO surgery, just in case you're wondering, or that's also known as orthognathic surgery, Oscar. So, so that's... A more common way to say it. With and without the ERAS protocol they developed, and they hypothesized that using the ERAS protocol for patients undergoing orthognathic surgery would significantly reduce hospital emissions, decrease perioperative opioid use, decrease pain scores, and reduce complication rate. So methods, they utilize a retrospective observational database review comparing patients undergoing BIMAC surgery with or without genoplasty with their intervention cohort protocol compared to the control cohort not having it. So the way they did it was temporal based. So they just had in 2016, they didn't have this protocol. They looked at all the patients then. And then in 2019, they developed this protocol. So then they kind of used that. Not the greatest way to do this, as many people will say, you know, it's three years later. It doesn't matter if it's the same surgeons. You're way more experienced. You've done way more cases. Not Picture yourself in three years from now. Exactly. And they talk about how the residents would almost always do half the case. Well, what if you have different residents? You really want to kind of do a you know, split study at the same time, kind of randomly dividing people into ERAS protocol and, you know, control group at the same time and follow it forward, a prospective study, dividing. Yeah, that would be ideal. Yeah, like you're picking two different. Yeah, I didn't love that part. Yeah. So that's not ideal. And then they excluded people if they were having an additional surgical procedure, if they were ASA 3 or higher, if they had a history of OSA, and if they had any genetic syndromes or comorbidities that warranted an admission, such as you know morbid obesity or people that were having a, a surgery in the day surgery unit. So a couple of things to talk about here. The first thing, and this is what drives me absolutely crazy, is that the primary outcome was same-day discharge, which was defined as a hospital length of stay less than 24 hours. That's not same-day discharge. And this is a big thing in the U.S. And I, I remember when I went to the U.S., I was so confused about this. And all our American listeners would be like, what is he talking about? This is so run of the mill. But basically in the U.S., you have what they call, you know, ambulatory surgery, which is what we call day surgery, which is same day surgery. You come, you have the surgery, you leave the same day. You go home. There's You go home. You're not staying with us. <laughs> yeah, you're not staying. 
Then we have SDA, same day admit, meaning you, you come, you have the procedure and you get admitted overnight. It doesn't matter if you stay for one night, 40 nights, it's the same classification. But in the US, they have ambulatory surgery, which is day surgery for us. Then they have same day discharge or day surgery, which means you can come, you can be admitted as long as you leave, literally in less than 24 hours, like the clock matters. So 2359, you're okay. You're okay. But if you stay past that, it, it becomes an inpatient stay. And I would get so tripped up because in my fellowship, I would, you know, classify people for, you know, admit the patient. They're an inpatient. And they're like, whoa, but is the patient leaving in less than 24 hours? I'm like, yeah, they're like, no, then it's not, then it's observation. They're an observation patient. They're not an inpatient. And anytime I put someone in OBS and then they stayed one hour longer, they're like, no, you got, you got to switch this to inpatient, you have to do it. And it was a big deal and it's all insurance-based. Oh. It's all insurance-based. So like, I would have no idea what you're talking about. Like, no, you're either staying or you're going. Yeah. So unfortunately, it, this pollutes a lot of this type of studies. Every time I see a study that's like this, I always get really excited or a presentation because I'm like, man, orthonac is day surgery. This is great. This is obviously something I'm passionate about. Something, as you know, in the fellowship, 60% of our cases we're in the office. People come to the office, we do the surgery, they go home. No matter what, doesn't matter. ASA classification, we did triple jaws, we did OSA, everyone went home. And we're in the midst of trying to publish the data and of the, I think it was 1200 procedures over 10 years, like seven people went to the ER within like a week. And, it, and all seven were, you know, pain management or TLC or oral intake. So we're working on publishing that data. Or Wendell right surgery. <laughs> yeah. I did have one. I had but one that's when crazy. I was- That's crazy. That's so low. I had one, I had one when I was in fellowship, we did the procedure and the family came to pick them up and the family hadn't come to any of the like pre-op visits, the discussions. So they show up, they see this person, they're swollen, they're, you know, <laughs> drooling, they, <laughs> they're all puffy and they're like, what the hell happened here? We gotta go. They called an ambulance. They called an ambulance. They took the beach out. Like we were like, no, no, you don't need to do this. And they were like, no, they were adamant. They're like, no, no, we need to do this. <laughs> yeah. So that was the one in fellowship that I had to send. So you need to keep in mind that when you're talking about same day discharge, it's not same day discharge. This is all kind of a sham. It's less than 24 hours. So let's get into it. They have a whole table. It's our table one. It kind of summarizes what their ERS protocol was as far as preoperative meds, intraoperative, what they're doing, and then post anesthesia care. I think it's really important to know that preoperatively they're giving Tylenol, which is fine. A lot of us do that. They're also giving gabapentin, which I guess there is emerging evidence for people giving gabapentin. I'd rather not. It's like, why introduce another medication that you don't have to? They're giving scopolamine patch. That's to prevent nausea. They're giving some steroids. Like they're, they're giving a lot of stuff before meloxicam. And then intraoperatively, they do intubation, uh, nasal ray with a video scope. That's fine. I mean, you can have a glide scope. You can do a nasal intubation. That's fine. They use propofol, lidocaine, rock, and dexmentomidine for induction. That's all fine. I will say dexmedetomidine or Presidex is extremely expensive, like really expensive. So although it's showing really promising results in anesthesia and it's coming down over time, and apparently people are having like amazing results with it, like smoother wake-ups, better for kids, better for everything. It's extremely expensive. They use transdermic acid, which some people like for the orthognathics, some people don't. I never really use it because I don't think you really need to, unless maybe during the case you notice they're oozing a lot, but I've never really seen the point of 
using it routinely. They use fentanyl. So one of the big thing is opioids. They use fentanyl because it's short acting. They don't want to use long acting opioids like hydromorphone dilated pretty much. They want to avoid that. So I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And then they give them antiemetics, adansetron and steroids. So that's fine. We would usually give that anyways. And then they restrict the fluid that's given to one liter. This is actually huge because even at Charlotte, we would try and restrict the overall fluids given to 1200 to 1300. And it was weird. It was like a big deal. Like don't load them with fluids because of post-operative edema. And here they talked about bladder issues, but for us it was post-operative edema. And I don't know, I mean, it's impossible to tell, right? Because there's so many confounding factors. I don't know if they were less swollen because we were restricting fluids, they recovered better, or because the surgeries would take an hour instead of four That's, hours. I would say, if I'm picking one, I'm picking that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say, yeah, you're, your single jaw is taking 45 minutes instead of two hours. I think that's the biggest effect. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I would lean towards as well. But I will say, it was just a note that we did have a fluid thing. Like we actually mentioned that as well as trying not to overload them with fluids. So watch the next guy who's doing a four hour orthognathic. He's like, yeah, but I only gave one liter of fluids. <laughs> <laughs> Patient's dehydrated yeah, or exactly. going to hypovolemia shock. zero saliva. So let's get into their technique. Now their surgical technique, the only thing I'll point out is they give local, that's great. They give lidocaine prior to incision, I can't recommend that enough. They give marking at the end for post-operative pain, that's amazing. But they use a sauna pet, which is an ultrasonic oscillation saw for controlled maxillary down fracture. Dude, first of all, completely unnecessary. You can just use a pterygoid osteotome. Also, sauna pet is super expensive. I don't even know what it is. So it's like a piezotome. It's like ultrasonic oscillating sauce. You know, piezotome is not oscillating. It's like- So this is like when a perio wants to do a surgery? Yes. Yes, oh exactly. my God. Yeah. Like, or the people that want to do like a piece of tone for a BSSO and it takes four hours to turn it to the bone, like at like one millimeter oh an hour. Oh my God. Yeah. That's what the sauna pet is. It's ultrasonic. So it doesn't damage soft tissues, but it takes forever and it's really expensive. Yeah. Like that's just a waste of time. Like really expensive. The other thing they use is for their maxilla, they use locking plates, which they're saying, yeah, they're saying, oh, it provides more fixation and maybe you don't have to use rubber bands as heavy afterwards. I'm like, man. I don't know about you, but I've never had someone complain about how heavy the rubber bands were afterwards. They don't know what I the hell's going I was going to say, on. they're swollen. Like, you think those rubber bands are their worry? <laughs> yeah. Like, they, they can't breathe because they're so congested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> their nose and their sinuses are yeah. blocked. They don't but care they're like, the you know what? This rubber band's a little too tight here. Is that a, is that a 6.5 ounce <laughs> yeah. or a 4.5 ounce? <laughs> Did you double up on this side? It's like, oh my God. Yeah, so I thought there's a little bit, a little bit of questionable surgical technique kind of modifications. And I would have liked to see the protocol without the super expensive interventions. Like you kind of want to have something that's more generalizable. But I, as I said, I agree with the fluid restriction. I agree with them avoiding long-acting opioids. That that actually makes a lot of sense because you want them to recover. You want to you want to get them out of there. So post-operative pain management, they would give Hyset, which is hydrocodone um, and acetaminophen. And then they would give only fentanyl if it was severe pain. And they would only try and give it once. They're trying to not to load them up on narcotics. So that's pretty good. And people are safe for discharge if um, they meet the discharge criteria greater than 13. If there's no evidence of bleeding or excessive bleeding, their airway reflexes are intact, they can swallow liquids without a problem, age-appropriate behavior, and they're voiding appropriate. So their discharge, discharge criteria made a lot of sense. So that, that was really good. That's pretty standard, yeah. So let's get into the results. So the intervention group, so the ones with the protocol, demonstrated a significantly lower duration of hospital stay from as 15 and a half hours compared to 34 hours. So I'll say overall, it's good. It went down. But think about 15 hours. That means they stayed overnight. Yeah. Right? I mean, you pretty much stayed overnight. Unless you maybe you were the first case you finished at 10 and you went home at 10 at night. But that doesn't make any sense. Almost none of these at people that point, are. At that point, you just keep the patient. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Although it did decrease in half, that's good. And we like the trend. It's just not day surgery. That's, that's the really the overall thing that really bothers us. They said the number of emergency department visits and inpatient readmissions within a week of surgery was low in both. It was six and a half or 8%. I find that extremely high. To readmit people within a week, 8% of the time, especially if you admitted them, that's a lot. That is a lot. That's a lot. And hopefully, as I said, I'll publish the Charlotte data eventually, and we'll be able to get some other concrete numbers from like large study numbers. But I find that extremely high. And I think about all the cases I've done and I've seen done, like 8% going to the emerge after. I mean, and like you said, and these high. were admitted patients too, right? Because they're staying 34 hours. Those are admitted patients. Yeah. Yeah. So I found that extremely high. That means like within five days of discharge, they're coming back. Yeah. So now we get to the discussion. The primary objective of the study was to assess if the comprehensive ERS protocol reduced hospital admissions and allowed for same day discharge. We already talked about how it didn't reduce that. So we can, we can modify that to did it decrease their length of stay? Which it did. So it demonstrated that an evidence-based ERS protocol can be implemented to reduce admissions and allow for same-day discharge. Overall, we have to say we agree with the premise. We like that they're trying to decrease the amount of time in hospital and all the complications that can come with that. We disagree with their definition of same-day, but as I said, that's an American thing. Yeah, you're not disagreeing with what they're saying because that's something that's done in the States, right? It is technically valid for what they're saying. Yeah. I wanted to point out another thing that this article does that I find almost all not all but the majority of orthopedic articles do in the discussion section i don't know if you notice this too people always keep quoting these orthopedic studies from back in the day to show like how much better their protocol was or how much better their technique was so here it is again reports of surgical blood loss in the range of 800 to 1.2 liters 800 milliliters to 1.2 liters have been published with approximately nine percent of patients receiving an intraoperative blood transfusion. I've never seen one. Me neither. That's like, come on, at 800 to 1200? Come on. And this that, is again, that's when, it was done with, that's when it was done with the chisel and it took eight hours. And when the map was like 105. Yeah. So, and I don't blame them because that's from back in the day, the studies. I don't blame the studies. I blame anyone that's still quoting or referencing. Like if you're studies. quoting it, it's just to make yourself look better at that point. Yeah. I don't like it. I really don't like it. And I find it, it really kind of negates that. But as I said, it's it's often done in orthopedic articles. And, you know, maybe that's because that's what everyone's quoting. So you kind of, you kind of need to quote it to show that, hey, I'm not that bad. Yeah, because exactly. Like if you quote like a normal number, you're like, well, that guy's study makes it look way better than mine. <laughs> yeah. So overall, the article, as I said, I was really drawn to it because I like the idea of day surgery for orthopedic. And I want to see if that's possible. I thought you would love that, like the premise of that article. I love the premise of the article, but I don't like the false definition of what, you know, day surgery is. It doesn't answer the question of if, is orthopedic possible as an outpatient procedure, day surgery. So it kind of validates that I still need to try and work on that data and get that published instead. And also too soon, I guess, to see if, you know, you can bring same day discharge to Canada because it's not really done in Canada. Yeah. I think the first thing is get your study out. And then reevaluate after that. <laughs> One step at a time. And get more yeah. comfortable myself. Yeah. <laughs> and let the hospital get comfortable with you. Uh, I'll tell all my patients, yeah, so you'll be admitted for 34 hours. Why 34? Yeah, yeah, 34. That's Yeah, uh, that's... 34 hours, and you're going to lose less than 800 to 1.2 liters. <laughs> <laughs> if you lose less than 1.2 liters and require less than one blood transfusion, we did a good job. We are good. We are very good. <laughs> it's a success. <laughs> doesn't matter what your occlusion looks like. Next up, just very quickly, we just wanted to give a shout out again. Simply put, we got the mandible fracture one. We love these. We're, we're printing these all the time. They're great for patients to look at. Great diagrams. You can kind of show what a mandible fracture looks like, what the mandible looks like. The only thing, and I'm nitpicking here, but the only thing I didn't like was they said 
For severe fractures, your oral maxillofacial surgeon will have to do surgery to realign the bone and hold the bony segments in their proper position with a piece of metal and or screws. I didn't like it because they said that, you know, minor fractures, you don't might not need to do anything except softer liquid diet, which is true, but rare. You know, moderate fractures, you're probably going to be wired shut. And then severe fractures, they might have to operate and put plates and screws. And I didn't like that because it gives a false impression that, first of all, that we should be wiring people shut, which we really shouldn't be doing except for very rare circumstances. But also that, oh, my surgeon is operating me. That's because I have a severe fracture or they're an aggressive surgeon. You know, and it's not just because we operate because we can give you a better result quicker, put you in functioning faster. And also the fact that he called it a piece of metal, like, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> We're just going to throw a piece of metal at you? Like, come on. Yeah. So yeah. the thing about these simply puts is they're great and they're good for patients, but you can't modify them. So you kind of have to take it as it is or come up with your own. So I like it overall, but that that one part, I was like, nah, this is probably one I won't give the patients because I don't want them to think, you know, we open most of our fractures now, as you said, and, and fixate them because it's better. And I don't want everyone thinking that we're being aggressive or that it's severe surgery. No, you're just providing them better treatment, honestly. Yeah. So definitely check those out. We'll link that in the, in the show notes as well. Now, last but not least, we have, and this was purely based on a recent experience I had, Oscar, and I wanted to pick your brain about it. And, and I really like the, the author of the article, Brian Christensen, who, who I've met several times, super nice guy down at LSU. This article is by Tiffany Hahn and Brian Christensen. It's called Surgical Treatment of Impacted Mandibular Second Molars, a Systematic Review. Seen a bunch of these. Seen a bunch of these. And pre-screening, it's a resident and professor at LSU. And I know the, the, the author, Christensen, as I said, is a super nice guy. So definitely passes the pre-screening. So it says orthodontic treatments require adequate coronal access and are generally used in more superficial impactions. So that makes sense. If you got, you know, an impacted second molar, but you can see the crown or you can see the, the, the closal surface or the buccal side. Yeah, they can get a bracket on there. They can pull it. They can use traction. Great. Not a problem at all. They probably don't need us. Then there's your normal surgical exposure and bracketing. But we're used to doing that for canines, maybe a premolar. Not really as used to doing for a second molar. Maybe the wisdom tooth is there getting in the way. So now we're talking about a little bit more involvement. Then the next option that they talk about, which I wanted to get your opinion on Oscar, is sometimes people will ex extract the impacted second molar and then they'll allow the third molar to develop and drift into place. And I've heard of this and I've seen this, but I've never done it. I'm not sure I would do that. What are your thoughts on that? My, and again, take it with a grain of salt, but there's no chance I'm doing this. <laughs> like to me, why is that? It just doesn't, honestly, it doesn't, it, it's not predictable enough. Mm -hmm. That you're you're condemning that second molar in the hopes that that other molar, the third molar develops, passively drifts into that open mm -hmm. spot, and then it adequately erupts into the proposition. That is way too many chances for me. And and again, there's uh, there might be there might be a lot of surgeons where it works in their hands. I'm just not going to be doing that. Yeah, and I find that even best case scenario, you extract the second molar, and you have this wisdom to that develops, and it develops at an angle, and then you have this tilted. Yeah. Tooth in this massive plaque and food trap, and it's a disaster. Then we're then going to be taking out when they're 35. Yeah. <laughs> so I found that that, although it is a treatment that's done, I agree with you. I don't think I would favor that one. The technique that we would favor the most, and I think I wanted to pick your brain, is this what you would do most often? Is would you extract the third molar and then either upright the second molar or allow it expose it and allow it to erupt? Exactly. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So they talk and, about this. So technique. like you'll see in the study too, one of the biggest articles, why we have so much exposure to that. This yeah. Procedure. Spoiler alert. No spoilers. Yeah. But speaking of which, Oscar, I wanted you to walk people through, let's say they had an impacted second molar, impacted third molar that's developing, 
and it's blocked. It's not the closest level. Can you just walk through like, what is the technique and how would you do it? So the first thing for, for me is, and, and again, it may be dependent on everyone else, but is you have to make sure that this patient, in my opinion, is being treated by an orthodontist. So they're getting appropriate treatment otherwise, or else you're not going to accomplish that much, in my opinion. If an orthodontist is quarterbacking that part of the procedure, you communicate with them, they're going to be putting either braces on or they're understanding that tooth is not coming in. And then you have a discussion with the patient saying, okay, these are some options for you. We can wait and do nothing, which likely isn't going to help at all. You can do the procedure that you talked about before, which I think is crazy, extracting <laughs> the impacted seven. If not, then the procedure that we would most likely do is where we actually remove the wisdom tooth at that. And while we do that at the same time, you're uncovering, you're exposing the seven. And then depending on the degree of impaction and the orientation of that impaction, that also matters, right? Like mm -hmm. if they're measly tips, we can really make a change. If they're vertically impacted, it becomes a little bit harder. And that's where you hope that maybe they have brackets already on and you can expose it and put a bracket onto it. So I think it really depends on position, but yeah, eight comes out or the wisdom tooth comes out, you expose and then upright depending on the position of the seven. So one question I wanted to ask from you, because even in the article, some people, like a lot of the studies debated removing the wisdom tooth, not removing it. I was surprised by that because I know you've been trained, I've been trained, you remove the wisdom tooth, you need that space. And a lot of times, especially when it's measly impacted, your angular, the seven, you need to remove the eight to have enough space to upright it. But I, I've heard conflicting things about how you manage the bone. So on one school of thought, I've heard like when you're removing the eight, do it as minimally invasive as possible to keep the surrounding bone. Because when you upright that seven, you want bone distal to it. But then I've also heard other people say, you know, just trough around, get rid of that bone and then upright the seven. It doesn't matter if there's bone distal, if it's just a socket distal to it. So I'm not sure which one you favor. So I take out the eight like I normally, like I'm not very aggressive on my bone removal on the wisdom teeth. So I, I'm not being extra cautious if I'll say that. I'm not being extra cautious to try to protect any extra bone for that distal to seven. No, I'm not. But okay. I'm not going crazy and just obliterating that distal yeah. bone either. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So uh, we have a very similar approach, I think, and similar technique which is funny because we trained at different places, but we resulted in the same way. So the ideal time to perform this procedure is when the root of the mandibular second molar is two thirds formed because performing the procedure too early could lead to instability, but too late can lead to root fracture, especially when the roots are fully developed. So this is a good topic for residents. And this is why we want to do kind of resident reminder in journal club as well was you're going to be asked about, you know, impacted teeth and everyone always thinks about wisdom teeth, but they'll ask you about canines. They love asking about canines but they might ask you about a second molar and how you'd manage it and what are kind of the risks and what would you tell the patient. So the purpose of the paper was one, to evaluate the frequency with which surgical exposure only or surgical uprighting procedures result in the proper positioning of the mandibular second molar, and two, evaluate the complications such as pulpal obliteration, calcification, infection, root resorption, and loss of vitality. So I'll be honest right away that when it came to complications, I only thought about root fracture infection and you know ankylosis or the tooth not moving i didn't think about like pulpal obliteration You're like what'd you call me of a, yeah i was like what? i was like what <laughs> the endodontist i was like yeah. i didn't even think about these You're like if i didn't break the root i'm done with this procedure so eight studies were included in the systematic review as i said you know start with the big number we it down and they got down to eight studies and the first part they talk about is third molar management and what i loved is and you know you're just reading the article you're going along you're looking at articles and then boom right there Caminiti et al. reported removing 226 of 260 associated third molars. And I was just like, man, it feels good. It feels good to see a Canadian author, 
in the midst of this systematic review. And James like, I don't know. I, I thought I felt really, really good to see that. Yeah. And especially when I was reading the article, I'm like, oh, I wonder if they meant, because I know his study, right? Like, yeah. And, and, and then when I read, I'm like, perfect. It's there. It's there. And and he had great numbers. And like, he actually quoted saying, Kim, you did a good job of this. And if you look at the bias table, like he's like, Kim, was like very highly rated. It's the best. So I thought it was, I thought it represented us really, really well. So, so huge shout out for that. But even he didn't remove the third molar all the time. So maybe there are some criteria involved and things like that. It'd be something to look into. Postoperative ortho, something that you mentioned. Studies were excluded if they required additional orthodontic treatment to be considered successful, meaning it's okay if you did non-critical stuff. So postoperative ortho was commonly used, but this is consists of putting an orthodontic bracket on the tooth once visible and incorporating the tooth into the wire. But if you had to do other things that, you know, yeah, that were jeopardizing the result, then they would exclude the study. And then one thing I wondered about was bracketing. And once again, it says Kamenidi et al. reported placing brackets on the impacted tooth postoperatively 160 of 260. So 61% of the time he bracketed teeth. So that was good to know. Then they talk about pulpal obliteration. So if you look at the overall percentages, as I said, this, these meta-analyses are great for looking at complication rate. 27% chance of pulpal obliteration or calcification. Yeah. I thought it was pretty high. That's a quarter. <laughs> yeah. Thought, and as I said, considering I never even thought of that as a complication, I was like, whoa, that's quite a bit. <laughs> You're like, so I should call an endo and have a good endo friend in my practice. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. I didn't realize it was that high. Infection, 1.9%. So that was good. You know, your standard. That was nice and low. So I was happy about that. Root resorption, 15%. Also a lot higher than I thought. It, it is higher, but it's not surprising when you think of what you're doing. Yeah. Like you really are moving that. You're fulcruming quite a bit. Yeah. And you're disrupting the entire, you know, circulation and natural equilibrium of where that tooth is supposed to yeah. be. Yeah. So like it is high, but it's, and if you really think about it, it's not that surprising. Yeah. So that gave me, that gave me food for thought as well. Just when I'm talking about the complications, now I know kind of more to discuss and also the percentages at least that I can kind of quote. And then root fractures is 1%. And I got to say, Oscar, I, I haven't done a ton of upwriting, but let me just put it this way. My complication rate for root fracture is definitely not 1%. <laughs> Honestly, it is the scariest. You you do not want to hear that sound. Oscar, I got to do like 95 more and not have a problem to get to like 1% complication. <laughs> if you catch my math, if you catch where I'm going with this. You're like, I have to do 150 more <laughs> and not have a single root fracture. <laughs> <laughs> the math might add up, man. Oh, I man. did have a root fracture for the first time. My management was, okay, so this is the thing. I took out the eight. I'm trying not to, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Finally, it gave, but I also heard a crack. But then I upright it, the level, looks great. I disclosed it. This was actually one of my big times where I had to go disclose. And then I went back to my consultation and I was like praying. I was like, please let me have discuss this and document. And I, boom, I document risk root fracture like i documented it was great but my management was leave it be monitor it and see what happens but sometimes they mentioned here like they'd only remove the tooth if there was root fracture so what was your protocol or how are you trained like if the root fracture do you just observe or do you tell root canal or do you just remove the tooth what do you do from right now again like i'm gonna knock on what i haven't done one yet but what we had done and like what a lot of the partners talk about is we would just observe it mm -hmm. yeah especially because a lot we're doing this on, on a lot of times on young patients right and so there's the chance, open apex, a little fracture, and maybe nothing ends up happening. Yeah, um, that was the hard part. This person, when the roots were developed, they were older. That was, and so that was that's, that's where, like, you know they're going to be at higher risk in that, in that situation. But yeah, I was trained to observe it. We're not taking the tooth out just because that root's fractured. Yeah. 
Okay, good. That's why I told the patient. I said observe, we'll follow up. Regular radiographic follow-up, monitor infection, pain. You might need a root canal, might need to extract a tooth. That's exactly what we do. So we'll see. But uh, as I said, a lot more smooth cases to get to that 1% uh, <laughs> root fracture percentage. <laughs> Won't be publishing a study anytime soon, I just put it that way. So discussion, uh, successful treatments for positioning impacted mandibular second molars in the dental arch. Surgical uprighting had a 91.7% success rate and surgical exposure 82%. So relatively high for both. Yeah, that's great. Especially since this is a tooth that's not going to be functional and not going to work out. You know, 92% if you do a surgical uprighting, I'll take that. I like that. I, I like the chances there and I'll take my chances there. The other thing that they talked about was orthodontic management. And they really kind of emphasize that you have to really involve, as you said, your orthodontic colleague and make sure. It's useless if you don't. That you have some that maybe... I like to say, I even like to tell the patients, you know, sometimes we can upright and we can get things and it might start to drift, but maybe it'll just erupt or drift enough that they can get a bracket on there. Boom. Start pulling it up. Yeah, I had a so, case like this last week where we're two weeks ago, we talked to the patient. I'm like, you're not going to get ortho like they, and they're adamant. No, I'm not. And, and they had two impacted lower sevens and I was taking up the eights. I'm like, sure. I'll just, you know what? I'll operate them for you, but this is likely not going to do anything. You're, you're not, your teeth are all crowded. You need full ortho and you're not doing it, but sure, I'll do this for you. So as long as they're aware, but really an orthodontist needs to be involved in this. Yeah, definitely. All right. That concludes our journal club. That was really hefty, but we had a lot of great topics and we wanted to incorporate the resident reminder into it. And we had to cover two months. So there's a lot of reasons it went kind of long, but hopefully people enjoyed it and they enjoy the articles. And I would like people to reach out to us about how they feel about journal club because we spend a ton of time, you know, reading through articles, sifting through, finding the good ones, doing an analysis, talking about it. I think it adds a lot to the podcast and people seem to really like it, but it would be nice to get some feedback if people appreciate it and it stimulates them to read articles or just think about things. It would be good to know, I think. And I think that's, that's good. And, it, and like speaking of feedback, kind of like my portion moving forward would be resident reminders is what do people, what do residents want to know about? Because mm -hmm. if not, we, we try to focus on things that we like or we try to incorporate with Journal Club. But if it's like some residents, we're, we're now out of residency in a little while, we may not be in touch with what they want to get learn about. And they're like, no, useless. Like, stop talking about this. Talk about something else. Yeah, that's a good point. They can kind of give suggestions on topics. And as we always say, reach out to us if you have suggestions, if you have feedback, or if you want to be a guest, or you can think of someone that would be a great guest, please, please reach out to us, teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We want to get everyone involved. So that would be really helpful. It helps. It, feedback really helps us because um, it gives us positive reinforcement to keep going. But also it kind of gives us a perspective that we might not have because we see the podcast in one way, but the listener might see it in a different way. Yeah. And that's what really matters, what they're, what they're experiencing. Exactly. So that concludes Journal Club. Let's move on to our last segment, Recommendations. Okay, Oscar, our last segment, first recommendations of the new year. So pressure's on. Before we get to our actual recommendations, some quick things I wanted to jump into. The first is that Tony Shihadi wrote to us and said he's followed my recommendation and Nick's recommendation on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he absolutely loves it. And he said he started to realize that all the Curb Your Enthusiasm situations are happening in his real life. And... Everyone that's watched Curb will appreciate this and love it because it is. The, the show is about random stuff that happens in real life that really annoys people and really annoys him. So you start to be like, wow, now it's all happening in my life. But it's, it's been happening just, your whole it, life. You just haven't noticed it. You just never noticed it. Yeah. Never thought of it as a thing. 
but it is a thing that everyone thinks about and everyone notices. And they'll they'll talk about things as benign as you get to a door and you hold the door and you open the door and you look behind you. And there's a critical distance of whether or not you'll wait to hold the door especially open. Especially for now someone. with COVID, I don't hold it for anybody. <laughs> yeah. You gotta be six feet behind me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, hey, you weren't sure. Was, hey, I was just being safe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Put your mask on. Yeah, but you're... <laughs> so he's noticing that, and I think everyone will notice that. But I'm actually rewatching Curb just because I only watched it once, and I just—it's my favorite comedy of all time. So I'm actually rewatching it now, and I agree. Like it, all the situations happen in real life, and it's hilarious. So he wrote to us to say that. I wanted to ask you if you saw Tiger King two. No, I have not seen Tiger King yeah, two, and I haven't. And I this is—I cannot more strongly say this is an anti-recommendation. Tiger King 1 was hilarious and it was so funny and it was a perfect pandemic thing. You know Tiger King 2 is going to be terrible. Yeah, like like what else can Don't even be? bother. Yeah, it's a total <laughs> cash grab. Don't even bother. Do not watch that. It's for sure going to be a waste of your time. And, you know, Oscar, we're not perfect. And we're going to recommend things that some people will like. We're going to recommend things that people don't like. But I think it's important now and then to pat ourselves on the back and just say, like, you know what? We nailed it oh and i don't think we've ever had such a better recommendation than all the talk we've done about formula one. Oh, and that finale i don't even want to talk about it yeah you're a mercedes fan uh, but, uh, no honestly not just being okay and i'm a mercedes fan like everybody fine that's that's how could you say that was fair it was not fair Ex- exactly right like and not being a, like a just a mercedes fan like that was an insane way to end a season it wasn't fair and at the same time, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. It was amazing. It was amazing. And I, did, I wanted to pat ourselves on the back because everyone watching Drive to Survive, because that was our recommendation, was watch Drive to Survive. We didn't say people have to watch F1, but that's the natural progression. And even for me, I watched Drive to Survive and I was like, no, nah, I'm not watching F1. I'm not watching it. It took me like two seasons of Formula One to say, okay, well, maybe I'll give the, the live you know, Formula One a chance. But we started recommending this hard to people watching the races or watching the series. And then this year happened. And... It is literally the greatest season of all time. It, the best Formula One season. The best Formula season ever in the history of Formula One and the best ending ever that we'll probably never see again in our lifetimes. And everyone who watched the race will know what we're talking about. The, the Coming down to the last race and the last lap, it's impossible. And, and especially when the race looked lost. It looked like it was done. Like Hamilton yeah. was going to be champion. He was crushing Verstappen. The next week, all we talked about at work was that. Oh, it was crazy. And everyone that watched is going to know how crazy it was. And if you haven't watched it, you should go watch it. But I want to give us, you know, a pat on the back because we've been pushing hard for Formula One. And a lot of people took our recommendation. A lot of people are liking it. A lot of people are into it. And all of them benefited from watching the greatest season ever. And I cannot wait because I think March, maybe this March or April, Drive to Survive will come out. And I just cannot wait. To oh, watch I it. can't wait. And honestly, I feel like we should do with, with COMS, we should just set up a Formula One in Montreal. Everybody heads down. Yes, that's actually a great idea. I'll just meet yeah. up there. Yeah. Oscar's buying the tickets. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get uh, we'll get Eddie to buy it for us. Yeah. We only uh, only practice owners can buy things. Yeah. <laughs> no, damn it. I, I can't I can't be the lowly resident anymore or the lowly associate. Yeah. Practice owners only. So those are the things I just wanted to quickly shout out before we get to our actual recommendation. So Oscar, I'll let you go first. What's your recommendation? So this one is, I'm going to pass on a recommendation. And this one is, we were talking about Riddy, uh, Rittenberg a lot, this, this podcast, giving him credit. And I'm going to give credit for this, this recommendation. He gave it to me. So a bunch of people have told me to watch the show Yellowstone. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I've heard about 10, that too. At least 10 people have told me and Lexi came home one day also. She's like, Hey, I heard like a bunch of people saying at work, we should, we should watch Yellowstone. And I'm like, I'm not watching that stupid show. It's going to be so country. I don't want to watch farm it. Or something. Yeah. It's on a farm. Like there's no chance. So I ignored her for like six months. Really? I'm talking to him like three weeks ago. And he's like, Hey, you know, what you should watch Yellowstone. And I'm like, seriously, that's going to be so stupid. And he's like, trust me, just watch it. Watch the, like, all of a sudden I go home and like, Hey, like, let's watch Yellowstone. I get yelled at for telling her, saying that I don't <laughs> listen to her, but whatever, yeah. it doesn't matter. And we end up watching it down the first two seasons. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm hooked. No one sure. binges TV like you do. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. Especially like when we have nothing to do with this pandemic where we can't go out. I'm like, okay, we might as well watch. I'll never forget when I recommended Homeland to you. And, and then the next podcast I said, how'd it go? And you're like, yeah, it's really great. And I was like, yeah, but how many seasons have you watched? It's eight. You're like, no, nah, we finished. <laughs> yeah. Like we're done. Come on. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> it's like game of Thrones in three weeks. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've heard nothing but amazing things about Yellowstone as it's well. It's amazing. But I'm kind of jaded now because I also heard nothing but amazing things from you, but also from everyone else about Succession. And I watched the first, I watched the first three episodes and I hated it, but I kept going because literally every person told me it's so good. Keep watching. We got, and Bianca was watching with me too. We got to eight episodes and we just looked at each other. We said, we hate this show. Like we, 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 we resent watching it. We don't look forward to it. This is like a chore. So we quit. We quit after eight episodes. That's eight the episodes. first time we're so in, in like complete yeah. disagreement. Polar opposites. I just, I hate that show. Well, Wow. And I find okay. most people like it. So. so it's funny. So, cause I will say succession and homeland and, and uh, Yellowstone have one thing in common that it is a family type business, right? That's what uh, I'm worried about. But that's pretty much the only thing in common. They're completely opposite in other things. Because a lot of other people have said, oh, Yellowstone's amazing. Yellowstone's amazing. It's not as good as succession. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Cause it, yeah. Cause there is some commonalities of the family part, but other than that, it's completely different. I will yeah. watch Yellowstone. Like I would yeah. say, give it. I'll, a I'll definitely give Yellowstone a chance. But if it ends up being similar, I'm just going to bail. No, yeah, I don't think you'll bail. <laughs> oh, pretty confident yeah. there. Oh, and I got another one. Yeah, I got two. Dexter, the new oh. Dexter. Oh, dude, but have you watched it? So good. Did you watch the finale? No, don't say anything. Don't say anything because the finale is. It aired yesterday. We're taping this. It aired yesterday, and I haven't watched it. So don't say anything. No spoilers. But in general, I will hardcore back that recommendation because the original series was amazing. Now, granted, the last few seasons were pretty bad. Yeah. But the new season came out after so much longer. And it's amazing from right from the It's the same flavor, same writing, same style. Characters so good. Oh, I, I love Dexter and I cannot recommend it strong but enough. Let's just say we'll revisit this comment next podcast. Fine. Yeah, we'll talk about Dexter next time. My recommendation was going to be something that I'm sure 95% of it, ever, that everyone's listening has already watched. But it's important to talk about the obvious ones because I find when it comes to pop culture and Netflix, a lot of people depend on us. Even if it's super obvious and everyone's already watched it, they want us to talk about it. And I'm going to go Squid Game. Yeah, I love Squid Game. Squid Game. It was yeah. good. Did you watch it with subtitles or voiceover? Subtitles. I'm oh. really big on, I hate the English dubbing. I find it reduces the quality of the acting. It makes so, it sound really fake. I couldn't agree with you more. Like, so I, like my parents are South American and I speak Spanish and I'm fluent and I can't watch Money Heist because of that. So that's and, why I quit Money Heist because I watched it with English dubbing. It was terrible. And I couldn't, but I will say Squid Game. I, and I actually watched it with the voiceover and I thought it was decently done. And I never think that. Well, it's funny, but it's, but if you were to watch it with the original Korean language with subtitles, 
Because I watched, uh, I made the decision now, I will only watch things in their original language, even if it means subtitles, because I just can't stand the dubbing. And I watched Squid Game from the beginning in Korean, and I was loving and watching it. And four episodes in, I was like, I wonder what the English characters do sound like. And I switched, and I was, after 10 seconds, I was like, this is cringe. This is so that's bad. Because, yeah, so that's because you've already listened to the original. Yeah. And, yeah. and I feel for sure, if I would listen to the original, there's no way I could listen to the voiceover. But well, the only I thing listen is, to only the voiceover. The only thing is when you listen to the voiceovers, it allows you to multitask. When you have yes. subtitles, you have to, you can't, you can't and, be and doing I'm, anything else. And I'm that kind of person. When I'm watching a show, I am always multitasking. Yeah. So I'm you, on my computer, on my phone. I'm doing a ton of things when I'm doing that. That's the thing is you can't be doing other stuff if, if you're if you're using the subtitles. But it's more authentic. So I like the subtitles. Yeah, I want to recommend Squid Game. I thought it was really good. I thought it was, it was the, the common consensus is it's amazing. It's It's really, really good. It's a little bit drawn out. And I agree that it got a little bit long near the end, but I still think it's, you know, it's a phenom. It's really fun to watch. It's just really entertaining and suspenseful. And get this, it's the number one most watched Netflix show of all time. It's number one in like a ton of countries, which is crazy to me because Netflix is weird in the sense that like people in, you know, Romania are watching the same thing you and I are. And they're going crazy. Like it's speaking of this, this is my one pet peeve with Netflix. Mm -hmm. that they put all the movies or all the shows on on your page i would just like them to tell me off the bat if it's in english or not oh okay yeah because now they're merging everything i it really frustrates me because i'm like oh this show looks cool and then i click it and it's voiceover and i want to like yeah wave my remote at the screen i've actually noticed that too because for example i'm really big on the documentaries too and then i found like an amazing one i click it and it's in spanish and i'm like bro like come on you're like, what is my name, Oscar here? What are we doing here? <laughs> what's, what's going on here? So yeah, so that's what I wanted to recommend. I personally would recommend watching it in the original language. But as I said, if you want to multitask or you prefer English, then just watching that. But it is very entertaining. And this is the one that you can watch with the voiceover because I hate it and I was able to watch it. Nice, nice. Okay, well, that's good to know. Well, Oscar, that concludes our January episode. Obviously a long one, but we had a bunch to catch up on. Plus, you know, our New Year's resolutions and whatnot. And it was really nice to be back on the mic and, and chatting and catching up. Yeah. So hopefully our listeners enjoy it. Happy New Year to everyone. Hoping it's a hope it's a great year for everyone. That's uh, better than last year. It hasn't started that smoothly, but hopefully it picks up from here. <laughs> yeah. Could not have started worse. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we hope everyone has a happy New Year or had a happy New Year. And that's uh, great to be back. And we'll be chatting with you all soon. If you want to reach out to us, it's teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. Reach out to us if you have any suggestions for the show or want to be a guest or know of someone that would be a great guest. I will say, and we, we know spoilers, but we do have some good guests lined up and there might be one pretty soon that people have been waiting a long time for. It might be a big deal. Might be a big deal, but we'll see how it goes. No more hints. Have a good night and we'll see you guys next month. Talk soon.